Hey, thanks for downloading this episode of Battleship Pretension. Before we get started, uh, we want to let you guys know, if you didn't already, uh, about some bonus uh, video specials uh, that you can watch on our YouTube channel. There's a link on the website mm-hmm. uh, on, on battleshipretention.com uh, at the near, the near the top right. Um, and it would really help us out if you would watch them and tell other people to watch them. Let us know what you think, but mostly just just watch them. It, it might help us to make more of them. Yeah, it's something we're very excited about. There there will be guests in them, and I guess we can go ahead and say Yeah, fr- friends of the show like Josh Fadum, Susan Burke, Pat Healy. Uh, and again, if, if you watch, uh, more will come. Yes, and so you can find that. There's a YouTube button. It's right there. It's it's you can't miss it if you look on on the, on the page. So. Yeah. So uh, d- check those out um, again. It will help if you let us know what you think, but mostly we just want you to watch them. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, so thanks t- for watching them. Thanks to the guests you mentioned. Thanks to Cinephile Video for letting us shoot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun. We're very proud of these, and we hope to get to make more of them. So watch them. That's kind of up to you, though, isn't it? Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, this is our first uh, episode we've recorded in a little while. Yeah. Although we're still, we're still a little backlogged. Who knows when this, when this will go up. Um, but I'm curious to hear a little bit about your New Zealand trip. It was pretty great. Uh-huh. I enjoyed it a great deal. And uh, I, I, I don't want to go into too much detail because it'll take a fair amount of time and we do have a guest yeah and i don't want to be rude although it's not like a real guest and so <laughs> um so i'll be as rude as i, I want to be specifically rude to him i don't want to uh-huh. be rude like in a in a covert way but um so uh yeah so we uh jen and i did a lot of stuff we were there so that she could shoot uh, a couple of weddings and uh, and it, one was Saturday, one was the next Saturday. So in between, we flew to various places within the country, and uh, went to jet setting, exactly, and a helicopter. We we flew a little helicopter yeah. to the top of a mountain and got a photo uh, of us up there. And it really is. I'm sorry to put it mostly in terms of movies, but like. It was very Lord of the Ringsy, like <laughs> just just the. It really was quite majestic. Uh, just pretty much the whole the whole country, the South Island specifically, but uh, but it was just really, I don't know, very friendly people there, and uh, we ate at some good restaurants. I don't know. I know I've got some New Zealand listeners, but uh, are, you guys, are, I don't know what it is with your hot dogs, but uh, I don't get it. Are you in any way equipped to judge whether or not a restaurant is good? Yes. You're not. <laughs> Botswana Butchery, Queenstown, delicious. Okay, okay. They do a filet mignon solid. But I, I, need to, I need to let you know, because of your very particular Tyler-esque food tastes, mm-hmm. if you tell me you don't like a restaurant, there's a part of me that goes, oh, that probably means I like it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you're a jerk. Because here's the thing. I get the same thing everywhere. 
So if I say a place has good or bad steak or chicken or any of the any of the eight things I get, um, then you know this is a place to go for, for fl- those things. for those things. Yeah, but sometimes you get. I mean, you get like you got French fries at El Compadre. Like it, it, so, and if you didn't and like those, them, are delicious okay. French fries. Okay, no, I'd take. I'd take you, you know what though, El Compadre, terrible steak yeah. at the Mexican restaurant. <laughs> but um, but at uh, so at Botswana Butchery uh, in Queenstown, Jen and I went uh, the first evening before we went to an ice bar where everything is made of ice, including the glasses you drink from and the bar stools and stuff like Does that, that. Hurt your hands to hold it? They give you gloves. It, oh, all right. It's a touristy thing, and it was fil- filled with drunk people who seemed fascinated at the notion that Americans were there. Um, it's, like, so- it's like those restaurants, to me, like, have you heard of the restaurants you eat completely in the dark? <sighs> yes. It's like, just make good food. I don't need... Well, the, the, this whole thing, it was very I- much not a... It was not like, hey, let's go to a bar. It's, let's go to the ice bar and be surrounded by ice. It was like, it was the nice I, ice I, palace I just kind of think thing. if that much energy is being, being put into something other than the thing that is the point of the place, then it's not going to be... What, what is the point of the good? place? To drink. Nope. Sorry. It's to drink in an ice bar is the point <laughs> of the place. And so, right. yeah, it's it's very touristy. But uh, but so we went to this uh, Botswana butchery place, and then we went the second day mm-hmm. we were there, and it was a kind of a pricier place, but that's how much we liked it. And then a, a couple days ago, I was like, man, I could really go for it. Botswana butchery. Oh wait, it's seven thousand miles away, <laughs> and it really, it really bum, uh, bummed me out. But uh, well, you know who probably feels about seven thousand miles away right now because we've been ignoring him for four minutes. He can join in the conversation. He's been there. Well, let's let's well let's bring him in then. Indeed, um, you have uh, heard his voice on other uh, podcasts like the Criterion Cast. Mm-hmm. You've heard our voice on his podcasts, um, the Marketplace of Ideas. And I like that you singularized now, our voice, like we yeah. speak with one voice. <laughs> yeah, Marketplace of Ideas and the new uh, Notebook on Cities and Culture, uh, and making his, uh, I guess, debut on Battleship Pretension, which is definitely our dropping the ball that this <laughs> he's not been on the show before, and it doesn't feel like the review, like, yeah, like right, the right. debut. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Colin Marshall, longtime listener, first time <laughs> guest. Hi, <laughs> you know, it's a good it, word. Um, I like that you're a long-time listener, but um, you are like you see more movies than I do. Hmm. You probably know more movies than I do, and I think you're who I think the listeners are. I always have this like you just self- picture me sitting there. No, I just always have this self-consciousness, like like what am I doing, like talking about movies, which is such authority every week. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure most of them see more movies than I do. You know, I watch. I watch Gossip Girl every week. Right. Uh, like, I, I, sh- I, I should, if I'm going to put myself out as an authority, I should spend more time watching. Mm, you have a you TV know. podcast. You, know, uh, you need I, to watch I TV. Uh, I do. Um, but, um, and, anyway, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get that out before we even start the episode that I <laughs> believe Colin, uh, you know, is, is more heavily involved in movie watching than I am. Yeah, so listeners, be prepared to be like, gain some perspective on on me and david because you'll be like oh oh these guys 
as I have so often said, are frauds. <laughs> You're going to learn uh, some bitter truths today, audience. I'm we, sorry. You, you know, what, Turn what it I, off now. What I do to cover up, if I start, if we're talking for This a is while. like when, uh, when a kid in the 30s figures out Shoeless Joe Jackson is a racist, <laughs> isn't it? Like it's, <laughs> it's they will, a a lot of, of racism will come out of this episode. So. Right. What I do... Not l- Honus Wagner. L- listeners will know that... Uh, I, like, I'll occasionally feel like, oh, I don't sound like uh, enough of an authority, and then I'll just say something mean about a movie that everyone likes, and I feel like, <laughs> all right, that, that gives me some credibility. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get to some of those today, I think. I'm, I'm sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, Now, Colin, I guess, tell us about yourself. Well, tell us about New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. You've been there. I want you two to discuss yeah, we're, New Zealand. We're, but a few, year, welcome a few to years the, ago, This right? is the New Zealand cast from... Tyler Smith and David Bax. Zealcast. I'm your New Zealand guest, Colin Marshall, <laughs> fellow New Zealand goer. Um, favorite cities include Wellington uh, and a little hamlet called Clinton, where I stopped for ice cream. And they were very impressed I came from Southern California. Um, <laughs> but New Zealand is full of sheep, I guess is the main thing to say. It sure is. And it's full of, I mean, it's, it's Australia's Canada, but cool, cool despite that. It's, uh, Wait, hold on. Yes. I'm trying to think how many people you've just offended. No, no, <laughs> it's... Probably New Zealanders. Yeah. And also Canadians. These are good things. I like Canada. I visit Canada often. But you said cool despite that. And it's, oh, no, it's cool despite being frameable as another country to another country. You know, right. it's its, it's own Canada thing. Canada is cool. Canada's cool. I've never right. been, but it seems cool. They Canada, like Canada is cool, and New Zealand is cool relative to Australia in the same way Canada is cool relative to the United States of America. Um kind of their own culture kind of defined against the big one they're near um and because they're small they get away with a lot of wackiness and 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 i don't want to say quirks because they're lord knows their cinema is getting away with uh the eagle versus sharks of the world left and right but um watch that on the plane on the way over uh but it's it's a fun i went there i think to like kickstart my traveling because it's like a good if anybody's pissed because they didn't travel as a kid, New Zealand is a good starter place because it's very different, but it's also um, not that foreign. Right. What did you? What notes did you want to compare, Tyler? Before um, we get into the get into the it. Well, did did you guys do a lot of driving in New Zealand? I was going to say, how'd you like doing the stick shift on the other side? It well, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a stick shift. We drove automatic, and uh, Jen did all the driving so that we didn't have to insure two people, and I tend to freak out oh, a sure. lot more. Um, but it was interesting. It's actually easier than you think. To answer that she, question, it, it was one day, and really only an hour of that day that was like frustrating. And from then on, she she got it. But right. But the uh, the the you know the shifter even on an automatic is on the the other side. Mm-hmm. So in a, in true like broad comedy fashion, you could tell like oh. I'm not used to this because the wipers would go on. Oh, it's like, real, it's like a Jacques Tati yeah. type farce. So, yeah, um, I was having a real uh, mononc when I was driving for the first few uh, <laughs> the first few minutes. But this this thing, like that part of Australasia, as they call it, it's kind of a dumping ground for Japanese cars that are unwanted in like North America. That would explain so why Suzuki is such a big deal. There. Right, Suzuki, oh, huge deal. But my dad I drive, and I, did, I drive a Suzuki. Here. My dad and I did a road trip um, through to a bunch of cities and. Uh, we got this in the middle. We went through a bunch of cars, and this one, this fucking Mitsubishi had like a, it had a, the the, the turn indicator went the wrong way. Like up was not right, up was left, oh. and down. And it, that was the hardest thing of anything in New Zealand of getting there, of driving, of 
talking to the people. That was the hardest task in that whole country was that one Mitsubishi with the thing that didn't turn the right indicator on. Hmm. That uh. kept messing me up. I mean, I was like, I'm, it's like a, the sort of stroke feeling you get when you use a Dvorak keyboard. We, uh, <laughs> it was very popular. We got, we got used to, because uh, we, we drove everywhere pretty much, uh, and we got used to it. When you weren't jet when we were Right, right. But we would rent cars ever, everywhere we went. And so um, when we got back, and as we took the, the flyaway from LAX to the Van Nuys uh, little private airport there, um, there was a lot of traffic going home on the 405 on our side. On the other side, there wasn't any traffic. And so I, it, it at no point to me felt weird to be on this side of the road. So it didn't feel weird, but instinctively, part of me was like, why aren't we just using those lanes over there? <laughs> oh, right. It's dangerous and illegal. This is like, the it, just, it seemed like a viable option to me, and then I had to remind myself, oh, no, that's not an option. I always said to myself, just make sure that there's no seat between you and the median. No matter what country you're in, that rule will work. If there's a seat between you and the median... You're about to die. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, that works. I was just thinking, through, thinking it through again. It does work. I didn't die there. I didn't. I don't drive here, but I've for the last few days I've done all of the driving because it is weird for Jen to be back. And so yesterday we went out to. She's going to hate for me to tell the story, but she won't find out for several weeks. She doesn't listen to this. So, um, <laughs> so she uh, we went out to dinner, and I drove there, and on on the, on the drive home. She's like, I was like, do you want me to drive? She goes, no, I'll, I'll get it. And uh, we went to make a turn. Windshield wipers go on. <laughs> and, and we both started laughing. And then she's like, yeah, let's pull over. And so we, we uh, switched seats. Uh, it was delightful. New Zealand's a fun country. All right. So let's, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself? Colin? Oh, sure. you're, you're, you're from Southern California. Um, I'm from kind of Northern California. Oh, okay. I grew up in Seattle, though, and then came back uh, ah. to Santa Barbara for college. Stayed there for a while. You can't come up in the world much in Santa Barbara because it's 60 miles off the five and 100 miles north of, of L.A. And, and even farther south of San Francisco, if you can believe it. So, And there, where are you? So, yeah, Los Angeles fascinated me. It, it kind of always has. So I moved here six, seven months ago. I, as you said, do the show Notebook on Cities and Culture, which mm-hmm. you've both been on, mm-hmm. uh, which came from, it morphed out of the podcast <laughs> and public radio show, The Marketplace of Ideas, which was a long-form interview show you guys were both on. The last time I was in this room, in fact, uh-huh. we were recording that. And um, let's see, write the pod thoughts column for uh, MaximumFun.org, where Ian Brill, my predecessor, wrote you guys up. That's how mm-hmm. I found out about you guys, oh. pod thoughts. Then I took it over and I've reviewed 200-odd Guys Gabin podcasts ever since. <laughs> Lots of fun. Uh, where else might you find me? I write menswear book reviews for Put This On. Uh, I write for the site Open Culture. Most of my money comes from stuff like that. Uh, and I make short films as well. And there's, there's a very prolonged production I'm doing of a adaptation of a, of a Borges story called The LF, about a point from which all of the other points can be seen. Um, Alex Cox wanted to do that one a long time ago, but he lost out because he needed to buy the rights. So... He did uh, Death in the Compass instead, which I like a lot. Well, uh, I, I want to ask you about writing menswear uh, book reviews. Really? I, did, I did read your review of Alan Flusser's uh, oh, you Dressing saw Man. Um, and I, and I, really, uh, I, I really liked it. Because uh, I, I, w- I wondered going in, how do you write a review of a book that's like a how-to book right. for something that's so 
visual and tactile, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you... Uh, do you critique the way it's written or how effective it is as a tool for getting well, dressed? With the same, it's a, kind of the same way I write about a movie, for example, which is like, describe your experience with it well enough and the, mm-hmm. the thing is evaluated. You know what I mean? The, the, the reader can then, the reader might have a different evaluation than I will just from how I describe it, but... I just figure if I can sort of report from inside the book, because not all, I mean, that's not the first men's war book review I've done. I've done other ones for other places, but they're not all how-to manuals. They're not all best approaches, how-to manuals. Sometimes what you learn from it is different than what they intend, and sometimes you have to approach it a different, different way than they want you to approach it. So it's all about sort of how, it's like a movie critic, you know, you want to read their personal experience with it in a way, but that's mm-hmm. made accessible. Like, you don't you don't want to hear Roger Ebert uh, you don't want to read him because he can't talk, of course. You don't want to read him uh, write a, I almost can. He has that voice. The voice synthesizer sounds like him. It's really kind of eerie. But you want to hear his personal experience with a movie. You don't want to hear him guess at like how well it's going to work for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I try to unify it. Whatever I'm writing about or talking about, talk about it and write about it the same way as part of one whole well, that leads me to another question. We'll get to the topic, I'm sure. But um, it's a pretty good topic. Too. Uh, Eight months researching, and this is what it comes to. No, go ahead. Um, to what extent, when you're writing, because I, you know, Tyler and I both write a lot more film reviews than we did say a year and a half ago. Since you know, that's become a big thing for us with the it's the website, blown up. Battle, battleshippretension.com. Yeah, check it out. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you write reviews of, uh, of of books and 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 podcasts and stuff. Um, do you ever feel like to what extent do you feel like you have to make it clear that what you're saying is your opinion or do you mm. trust that people are going to understand when I say that you know such and such an actor was off like if I say you know right. oh Natalie Portman's much better in this movie than she was in her terrible performance in X you know? right 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 um like I, I I don't know if it's because I write for the internet where people tend to jump on anything that disagrees with them as if it is a personal attack right um, oh the internet but do you do you feel it. that as as when you're critiquing things? Mm, I get around that. You're absolutely right that that's hard. I get around it though by not having a lot of opinions to begin with. Okay. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of opinion I think in the things that I write about or that I talk about. So to the extent that some leaks in, it's accidental um, because I would be hard pressed to cite an opinion of mine. If you know what I mean? Uh. Or does that make no sense at all? I, no, I guess that it's probably a more professional way. It came up recently for me because I was writing a review of uh, The Raid, or right. The Raid Redemption, this new action film. And the score for the American release is done by Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park. Right. And to me, I know this is my opinion, but to me it's not, it's like axiomatic that Lincoln Park is awful. Oh, I see. <laughs> it, it, right. It, it, so I felt like I had, do I have to like lay out huh. the, my own personal opinion of Lincoln Park? Did, did that hurt the, the film that the, the Lincoln Park dude was involved um, I, I think the music could have been better. It seems uh, right. it, it could have screamed louder. Did it detract from the constant violence? Uh, no, but it, it didn't. It, it didn't comment on it in any unique way. Right. The, the music was almost perfunctory. It was like here's what you'd expect. You know, it's like mm. uh, I think it, it's like energy drink music, if that makes sense. That's right. <laughs> well, it's the, the revelation I had over the past few years, at least in terms of my writing about things and talking about them, is. What does it mean for me to say Lincoln Park sucks or even I love Lincoln Park? It seems like that's that's just me being like looking at Lincoln Park and saying, uh, or like thumb up or th- like it's not 
I never came to grips with what that meant for me to say I liked or didn't like uh, some music. You probably have a better idea. If you can explain what, like you could explain to someone what you mean by Linkin Park sucks. Whereas I, I was always like, well, do I think they suck? Do I, do I, what does it mean to suck? Does it, does that have any, what does it mean if other people do or don't think that? What is like, what is sucking? Like it's, I I have to leave it aside. I find it almost impossible for me to talk about why I do or do not like music it's, it's, specifically. And I, I, I know people like the guy I do my other podcast with, Sean, is a you know, uh, big fan of music, and he can tell you, like, he, he can talk about music the way that I talk about movies. And I, I also I have that same problem articulating. It's like, I know this works for me, and I know this doesn't, and I have a loose idea why. Like, I know, I mean, I know if something sounds derivative or not, but that's about as far as I can go. Uh Basically, overproduced is something that I can usually say, oh, that was overproduced, which is why I don't like the vast majority of modern country as opposed to like your Willie Nelson or even uh, like Lyle Lovett or something like that. Um, So overproduced and soulless. And I think I got soulless from you because I think you were describing Train (laughs) as uh, their song or like a specific song of theirs. Uh, hey, Soul Sister, or whatever oh, it was. Oh, yes. Oh, we were on the Goebbels show, and you said it was soulless, and I was yeah. like, I guess I should listen to it. And I was like, this is a perfectly fine film, but I guess there is nothing behind it. What are all there's like a there's like a group of bands in the late nineties, early two thousands, like Train, Tonic, maybe. There's another one that was like Vertical something. Is that uh, you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Would like a Hoobastank be in this? Well, though? no, no. Those are <laughs> yeah. That's bad for its own okay. its own way. But uh, yeah, that 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 brand of just just wimpy like it's like shopping mall music it, it's uh well it's 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 unoffensive it's just yeah it's matchbox there. 20 is definitely in this camp that i'm okay. thinking of mm. well and also i'm sure the first band to be like that was probably okay but i think solace yeah. often goes with derivative i remember my, my ex-girlfriend got this uh computer program once when she got her new computer that was like an it was before this is before Wikipedia had started, and it like came with the computer. It was this encyclopedia. I don't know if there's a thing Apple did at some point. I'm not really a big computer guy, but it was like this huge, like sort of interactive encyclopedia that was installed on the computer when you got it. And it would have you would go to like rock music, and you would say click on punk, and it would give you this like sort of manufactured sound, like 30 seconds of this is generally what punk sounds like. And it's like I guess if you're holding a checklist, that's right. This is like how I learned about movies from Microsoft Cinemania, 1994. <laughs> And that, so, the everyone heard the that and was like, I should put lyrics to this. Yeah, well, that's what I think of when I think of Soulless. It's like, I guess Matchbox 20 technically has all the components of a rock band, but they don't rock in any way at all. Well, we've just talked a little, mm. we've just talked about music, but we've we've exhausted any way, any, like, any kind of detail that I could discuss why I don't like something. I could go into detail about why I do like something, but if something doesn't work for me, that's really where it ends for me. Uh, but now you were talking about how um, these uh, these groups of bands that sound a certain way. There was at one point the first one that was good that they're all copying. Yeah, and I think that will kind of get us into the topic today because it's something we saw nice maybe uh, well done, David. A, a lot in in uh, American cinema in the '90s. You know, there was this big thing in. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there will be a, a few nexus nexi. Um, yeah, I've got them written down all here. Don't worry. <laughs> but There's but nexi. you know, we've got like this sort of. Um, late 80s Sundance thing uh, in Sex, Lies, and Videotape and then into the early 90s with uh, Reservoir Dogs kind of jump-starting what I think we're going to try and 
talk about it as a movement. Mm. Um, but that movement also crossed over into the mainstream in a big way in the mid-90s. And you ended up seeing all sorts of things, you know, like Two Days in the Valley or whatever, which I actually hear is not bad. But mm. I, uh, I How does it compare to a Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead? I haven't I seen have either seen. of these movies. I have seen that because I lived in Denver. Right. My next door uh, neighbor catered it. You were so. dead at the time. <laughs> exactly. Wait, uh, I have seen Two Days in the Valley. Well, that's with Charlize Theron, right? I think so. And yeah, which one is James Spader in? I think I think he's in that. Okay, I don't I, I don't remember it though. Mm. Anyway, okay, well, uh, but we'll but, move but, on. Well, yeah, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, it was a thing when you know uh, we we love when guests are familiar with the with the layout of the show and have an idea. And and Colin, like probably almost a year ago, before you'd even moved here to Los Angeles, like you knew when you wanted to be on the show, you wanted to talk about. The American '90s sort of right. indie movement. I was reading about this stuff in in Santa Barbara, even. Yeah, yeah. While I was languishing in my day job, ditched that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so but, let's get into it, shall okay, we? Okay, let's get into what we shall. Um, <laughs> Indiewood, it's often called uh, the '90s, the movement where in, indie became uh, a big ticket item for a while. There, it's mm-hmm. it's seen as kind of a an echo of the new Hollywood. In the 70s, you know, where there's these periods mm-hmm. throughout American cinema history, I'll argue, tell me what you think of it, where film historians and critics say, that's where it was, that's where the mainstream was interesting, the 70s with your Coppolas and your Scorsese's oh, yeah. being told not to tap on the table. <laughs> that's going to be tough. And I didn't use words so that we wouldn't yeah, mention it. Well, it's too, I, there was a pause, I had to explain it. Yeah. Um, the Coppolas, the Scorsese's, the the... Peter Bogdanovich's, because you wouldn't have known him if I just said Bogdanovich. Um, there's a lot of those running around. They, they made the 70s interesting. You know, we, we, cinephiles our age, we weren't born, so we have to look back and say, man, that was cool back then. And, you know, for people our age, I was born in 84. I know you guys were born a little earlier. Many of the listeners were probably born around the late 80s. But throughout that age range, we kind of came of age as cinephiles during the, the height of this 90s U.S indie wood movement you know we watched robert rodriguez and kevin smith quentin tarantino i'm looking at my list for this um mm-hmm. or steven soderbergh wes anderson is especially influential as is paul thomas anderson um i've got certain names here that, that i'll mention i mean hell uh i'll add a Whit stillman and a hal hartley spike well, see, there, jones I think, david I, o russell I, I think yeah spike jones and david russell but i think people like Whit stillman and, and hal hartley and we'll probably get to it uh tom right. Basillo and maybe some other maybe other yeah there's um, there's many names the list goes on i had to keep to a certain tier but but yeah th- that's like the next tier it's like uh, yeah. to take it back to music you know i i got into punk in seventh grade right. through green day and the offspring you know, but it's because I then, you know, this is before, I mean, I guess the internet existed, but I didn't have access to it in 94 or whatever. Um, you know, it was like reading the catalogs of Epitaph Records and, and, and Lookout Records and like looking more. And that's where I got to the sort of, uh, you know, that right. that next level that I think. Uh, Your gateway uh, was Green Day, though. Uh, Green Day and The Offspring. Yeah. And then I did uh, hear the Ramones um, on, because there's a classic episode of my so-called life i don't know if you remember what they're doing mm. i want to be sedated oh um <laughs> uh, the 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 band uh, frozen speaking Embryos. of that era by the yeah. way yeah um, so-called life uh, yes anyway i just wanted to, to lay out right. that it does seem like there are the ones you mentioned are the ones that kind of i guess um i graduated is not the right term but mm. then 
that moved into the yeah. more mainstream consciousness. Some did, a, some didn't. But, but, but you're some right. Of the ones, the first group you mentioned, yeah. all kind of did. Well, there's, there's Whit Stillman three. is still around, but right. And Whit Stillman is he kind of deserves his own episode. I don't know how much I can say about him here because have you seen his own damsels in universe. distress. You, I mean, it hasn't come out yet. Um, but have you found a way to see him? I've I've missed the chance I had at Cinefamily. Okay. I was watching Metropolitan last night, though. If that's any that's any consolation for my failure to see the new one, I haven't but, seen it. Um, I mean, this period, I think of it as being 89 through 99, um, beginning with uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Soderbergh's uh, film at, at Sundance, and Sundance and Miramax being the sort of two motivators of, of this boom, or that brought it sort of to light. And going up until about 99, being John Malkovich, I consider the last debut film of the 90s indie wood boom, with Spike Jones, in, in, in right at the end of the 90s. Um, but... Yeah, Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, Quentin Tarantino are, are names that it's sort of it would have been hard not to run into, not to see their movies when we were growing up. And even even though I don't revisit those three wells very often these days, it's like it was always hard not to be inspired by these guys. Kevin Smith, you know, I would watch his commentaries on everything. I would read everything that he had to say Robert Rodriguez. I read his book Rebel Without a Crew five times, I think. Tarantino, to a, I didn't see his stuff quite as much, but being fascinated by that guy, you, you can't even today, right? I mean, you sort of he's he's got this magnetic, cinephilic personality that uh-huh. even if you hated his movies, I don't think any of us do. Uh, you'd be like, wow, that man loves movies, and there's there's something in that spirit. It's like it's like a cinephilia combined with a willingness to cheaply and quickly and by themselves make their movies at least at the beginning that that remains inspiring to me and i talked about opinion earlier i don't know whether i like or dislike any of these movies necessarily but they're always going to have a place for me because they they're what i came up with and what inspired me to get into film criticism and filmmaking i don't know if you guys have similar resonances with with these with these guys and their films Mm. Yeah, I mean, you named most. I mean, for me, probably a lot of the big ones are um, uh, obviously the Coens um, and uh, Danny Boyle, who's not American, right. but I, I don't know if the Coens. I mean, they started in the early early mid eighties, right? Eighty four. Yeah, I'm simple, just, so, yeah. Uh, but uh, I knew of them in, right. in the nineties. Yeah, and, me too. That's I had to stop. I'd be like, don't think of the Coens, don't think of Jim Jarmusch, don't think. Right. Of, I'd always think of a guy that I follow closely, and it's like they always debuted in 82 or like the late 70s uh-huh. so it's like no i limited this to uh debuts in the, the research 90s. debuts and okay. except for sex lies and videotape and hell hartley's first movie the unbelievable truth which are both 89 but i think of that as like well they primed the pump that's okay yeah. i can use those but um you can you the listener can find uh there's four books that i read more than that but four books that i can recommend on on this era um, everybody knows. Is it Peter Biskind or Peter Biskind? By the way, you know, I you know don't the fellow. Know how I mean? to say it. I'll I'll pronounce it like David Suskind. Biskind. Um, at least I can just point to. The, hey, that old TV host. He said it that way. His name was like yours. Um, he has a book, Down and Dirty Pictures, which is again the echo of the his book on the New Hollywood, which mm-hmm. was called uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yeah. I've never read that. Uh, but Down and Dirty Pictures is a very thick history of, of this time written in 2004 so it's kind of that immediately after looking back on that period um just as useful or even more so is uh, an englishman named james Mottram wrote a book I, which i finished today called uh, the sundance kids very detailed kind of a wider scope um not as embroiled in like 
Peter, Peter Biskind is very intent on telling you how gross Harvey Weinstein is, like about the food stains on his shirt or about his <laughs> barking at people or driving, driving his assistants near to suicide. James Mottram cares more about the films themselves, and he, in fact, does a close watch of all these films as well in the text. So that's more, of a, that's more about the films. Uh, Biskind's book is about evenly films in the business because it was such a, you know, or business-oriented movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it came out of new types of film businessmen seeing that there was money to be made with these small films. Uh, you could see those quotes that I just made, listener, in my voice, I'm sure. I didn't even have to do it. Um, there's a producer named John Pearson who... These buttons are probably clacking on the table. There's a producer named John Pearson who uh, wrote a book called Spike Mike Slackers and Dykes, which he changed to Spike Mike Reloaded on the second edition because he said he was tired of being left off of school reading lists. I guess the word dykes was a problem. <laughs> but he yeah, he, he produced some of the predecessors, like a, a, Spike, a Spike Lee's uh, She's Gotta Have It. He was instrumental in that. And um, he had a lot to do with Roger and me getting out there. Uh, slacker he had a hand in shepherding on the way and the dykes refers to uh, i think a film called go fish which i have not seen but he's got his is a very personal um idiosyncratic history of that time so it's a fun read uh, not the most essential one of all of them and then there's sharon waxman's rebels on the back lot which is about tarantino and david fincher and david o russell and a couple more uh filmmakers who became and this is a theme that'll that'll resonate with this time. They became the director as rock star. They often say, you know, these are the directors who got to be the first directors a lot of us knew who were growing up at that time. Um, and she is more interested in in David O. Russell and George Clooney fist fighting, or Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. lying about being less privileged than he was. Like she she cares about the sort of sordid backstories behind the the behavior of these directors which is one way of going. But I, if you told me she hadn't seen any, any of the movies under discussion ever, I wouldn't be surprised, you know what I mean? But they're all films, they're all books. There we go, get the medium straight. They're all books worth reading on this time. But, I mean, what I have here is a rewatch that I did of Sex, Lies, and Videotape through being John Malkovich. And I wanted to get your guys' sort of take on a lot of these films. I, I watched the first films of all of these directors chronologically and i wanted to see what you guys sort of what reactions you had to these directors these films is that a format that's suitable i think for that's this, awesome or? although i'm i'm nervous about how many debut well, i don't films, expect you uh, to have seen them all i was the only one who did the rewatch so <laughs> well um before we do that i do want to throw out uh not even necessarily a, a hypothesis but i wanted to to mention uh because i find it interesting just the, the the culture in which this happened. Now mm-hmm. I know that you're counting eighty nine, right? But I feel like this doesn't necessarily discount it. Which is, it's interesting to me that you know early nineties you had the emergence of a certain type of music, which you could say grunge, but a certain type of rock that you hadn't heard before, a very dirty, grungy type of rock. Right. It was in Seattle then. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and frightening so, as a child in a way. So, so there was uh, so that came about at this time, right around as did several movies that were often uh, defined by pushing the limits, like with language with Clerks or violence with Reservoir Dogs, or were kind of anti-authority, like uh, Michael Moore's films, right? 
around the same time that you get Bill Clinton elected, you know, Bill Clinton is elected and he's like the first, what was it, what they the say? First like the first sax M- playing president. I think. Well, I think they called him like the, like a, the MTV president because right. he showed, he was on MTV and no one had ever really courted that vote. Uh, before in that way no one had ever rocked the vote in quite such a way <laughs> exactly and rock the vote was about getting the vote out for democrats <laughs> yes. but um <clears throat> no yes but, but just get, a, get the vote out but you know for, don't just, me wrong. just vote right just, I, I, I like the idea but not right right no, just vote yeah, correctly yeah. correctly correctly yeah um like like, like you want to or vote for perot whatever yeah. whatever gets him in yeah but um that's a fascinating election by the way everyone go back <laughs> and watch debates between uh, bill clinton george hw bush and ross perot it is a load of fun. Those are fun debates, and you can tell even the guys on stage are having fun. And then so, watch the Alexander Payne film Election, which might come up here. There you go. Might it? Yeah, I can't Maybe. wait. <laughs> it wasn't his first film, though, so but I, just, I did see it theatrically recently. But no, I, I get the point. You're getting like, what? Do you have any uh, ideas into why why the culture produced this movement at this time? It seems like I mean the easiest way to, that I can look at it is. You know, we talked about the cyclical coolness of, of Hollywood, like it got cool in the 70s. It got dramatically uncool in the 80s, I think we would say, even though, you know, I like to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark as much as anybody, but things turned... These are not cool movies. You know what I mean? They're fun, but they're not cool. Is that a distinction that well, I there's, can... I mean, it really... It's like, okay, you had the six, like 60s culture in a response to conservative, safe Eisenhower... Right. culture and during which time don't get me wrong I, I love the 50s and all that but you did not get a lot of like counterculture stuff because not on not up top you know right, they, right. it was always very marginal like jim jarmusch was in the 80s jim jarmusch was right. around when uh when uh lucas and spielberg were doing their thing but he was forced down by that almost you might say to where you'd have to you'd have to live in uh, a brooklyn hovel to, to see one of his movies well and but you have to like you had to like look for them whereas like in the in the 60s and then like in the early 90s filmmakers that normally would just be cult filmmakers suddenly became known now right. maybe known among certain generations but even so like once once uh, like pulp fiction came out people of all ages knew who quentin tarantino was right. and it's just i think it, it was a a reaction to the culture of like I don't like what it has been. I'm going to question well, this because um, this is uh, this is uh, something that I let me theorize. I guess um, that with uh, we're seeing this happen almost at the same time that um, home video and VCRs are, are more popular. Mm. You've got more and more cable channels at this time, and something you see in other with television and 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 music. Just this this what I think of like as a, as a stratification of pop culture, where the sort of divide that you used to have early when there were only a few a few you know. Uh, a few television channels and, and just the radio and just the big movie theaters. You had the mainstream and then you had the fringe. And now there's this, again, stratification where uh, that I think has gone even further today. You know, as you see, a television show on a network that gets 7 million viewers is a big hit now, whereas in 1982, that would have been a failure. Right. Um, and, and, and so I think maybe part of the reason this became popular is be, because it became. Um, possible to find success without winning over everyone it, you know you could find niche markets large though they may be and thrive on that hmm. right it, it seems to be the case and i mean that's there's there's the story of that and then there's the, the parallel story in this time of 
filmmakers making these marginal seeming movies that then explode you know those those big three miramax guys being some of the names people always bring up but even even a wes anderson or but who uh, are the big three miramax oh rodriguez smith tarantino okay. you know it's uh, and those are the most recognizable names, but I mean, it is. Uh, I, uh, I hadn't thought about it beforehand that we, based on the parameters of this episode, we can't talk about Danny Boyle because he's not American. It's worth putting him up as a. I'll put him under the. I have a list of questionable inclusions which <laughs> right. we can go over, but D Boyle. Um, but yeah, we're talking about stuff that was important, like formative, to me as, right. a, yeah, yeah, as yeah. a film, a film like buff of my age. Uh, no doubt, Train Spotting. I watched it all the time. And it's not a million miles away from these films that these guys were making early on, and mm-hmm. in terms of its inventiveness or cheapness, as I as I recall, it wasn't. This wasn't a Clerks, but Trainspotting had a. It was not an expensive film either right. to produce, correct? No. So should I should should we go with this potted history? Or I, should, I, I love it. Okay, let's, let's try not to spend too much time on yeah. each each thing. We'll I'll keep I'll, it very brief. Very. Brief I'll be remarks. the one who. Moves it along. Sure, sure. Oh, thank you that's, for that, volunteering, for stepping forward. That's it's my it's my job here on the podcast is to keep things moving. <laughs> and we've been and you've done such a great job of it uh, for the last few months with our three hour <laughs> yeah you're right. indulgences. You're right. All right, let's let's go. Most of these books, these critics and historians, start off this movement in '89 with Sex Lies and Videotape, as I mentioned, Steven Soderbergh's film, which at 26 years old. And it makes me think of my age uh, of 27 every time I say that. Um, yeah, 26 brought uh, that movie to Sundance. And Sundance was a marginal festival before that. It didn't mean a whole lot. It was the, I believe, the American Film Festival yeah. before. There was actually a festival just called the American Film Festival. Um, mostly about, mostly movies about like the the rolling hills of Wyoming, as I understand it, before that. But he shook that up with sex sex lies, as he calls it. Um, the man does good commentaries, by the way. So if you ever have a chance to hear him do a commentary, the one on that, he brings Neil Labute in. Um, he just likes to do it with two people. Um, Limey commentary is good, too. But anyway. Oh, any, any, yeah. uh, any commentary he does with Lem Dobbs. Yeah, I know. I'm on board. Uh, I'll do anything with Lem Dobbs. Um, <laughs> There's a, on the Limey commentary, they're arguing about a scene that was cut. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. And he said, and 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 Soderbergh takes a dig at Lem Dobbs. He's just saying, you know, the, the writing just wasn't there. And Lem Dobbs yeah. is like, oh, I think it's just the way the scene was directed. And yeah, he's like, he's like, no, I directed the hell out of that. Scene. <laughs> it's like, Lem, when are you going to direct? No, I, but you know, Sex Lies and Videotape, I think, holds up uh, very well. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a movie you I would watch if it was made today as equally as then. Have you guys seen it? Oh yeah, yeah. No. Okay. So have you really not seen it? I've not seen it. Oh, you, you'd, you'd love it. It's I'm told that, um, and I think it's like the <laughs> the main reason people like. I feel like Andy McDowell gets a bad rap. Like people don't right. like her, maybe because she's an actress turned or a model turned actress, uh, you know, uh, and she's been in a whole lot of bad movies. But like, I know Andy McDowell from. Groundhog Day, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and Four Weddings and a Funeral, all right. movies that I like. When is the last time you saw Four Weddings and a Funeral, though? Is she not good in it? She's not bad, but like when you think of what, I'm sorry, a much better actress could have done with that role, you're like, oh, wow. Like that line of like, at the end of, is it raining? Is it still raining? I hadn't noticed. I think of that as like a really romantic line. Uh-huh. And then it's really stilted and, and wooden when she says it. And it's just like... Because I don't think she's bad. I think she's good in, in Groundhog Day. And and uh, she's not a bad actress, but almost any, having not seen Sex Lies, um, which just sounds like lies about sex. But anyway, right. I told a few sex lies. But the uh, 
I haven't having not seen her in that. I just the impression I get is every film that she was in, that part could have been filled with someone who would have done yeah. more with it. Well, here I talk about moving the moving the show along, and then I immediately take it on a tangent about Sorry. my opinion on Anna McDowell uh, and right. why I like her. But yeah, okay. So yes, yeah. I, I I love. Sex and I should say to the listener what these films are because th- this is a film that has become such a reference. You know, there, there's all these sex lies and blank puns you you, you see in the news mm-hmm. and everywhere else. It's become this touchstone without a lot of people having seen it these days. And you know, it's it's a a film deeply about sex with no sex scene, which that's not not just S C E N E, but no sex S E E N. James Spader is this dude who. His hobby, he can only get off, he's impotent, he can only get off by filming interviews of women discussing their sexual histories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if that premise can't get you in, I don't know what can. Same year, um, now, uh, Soderbergh hailed from uh, Louisiana, but from New York City came, and he's still there, he's resolutely New York, Hal Hartley with The okay. Unbelievable Truth. and Which I have not have not seen um i'm gonna i'm gonna get a padding to uh tap against because this is gonna be an issue um with, 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 more quick, go ahead with 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 sex lies i guess and i have i haven't revisited it in a, in a few years but um does it seem it, it, I, and you rewatched it right yeah 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 it seems like um steven soderbergh has become more of a formal experimenter uh as mm. things go on in in my memory sex right. and videotape is a much more straightforward uh film and it's kind of a rorschach test for experimentation in film because half the people i talk to say boy i'm glad he i'm glad he could do an ocean's 11 after that because that was weird and then half are like boy i'm glad he moved on to make bubble because that was just so straight ahead sex lies was so uh-huh. it's sort of like it's fascinating in that way because people think it's either too weird or not weird enough and for Soderbergh who's oscillated between experimentation letting off steam as he calls it and then going all out with an Aaron Brockovich or an Ocean's Eleven or one of his other major Hollywoody type films it's the only one that hits smack in the middle I would say yeah okay. but Hal Hartley are you guys familiar with his uh, work? Na- name name his films I know I've seen uh, uh, let's see Unbelievable I Truth Trust uh, Henry Fool Fagrim, Girl from Tomorrow. He, the, the man's made a bunch of movies, and he's kind of a universe unto himself, so I don't think we should spend much time on him even right now, uh, because if you guys... I need to get up to speed on part of him. Yeah. Part, but the, what what I've seen of his, he makes these... He makes very formally inventive... Not romantic comedies, but he takes the bones of that and constructs them in his own way. And I think of I have a Korean filmmaker that I that I follow quite clo- quite, uh, quite closely, and who I actually won a couple of free Korean uh, semesters by writing an essay about the other week. His name is uh, Sang Soo Hong, and he does the same thing as as Hal Hartley. I think of them, think of them as equivalents, where they they use these everyday urban settings, and they they build their films around these creative types, you know, the, as, as characters, but they. The f- they're all about the form and you know I don't it's a rabbit hole to go down but I would suggest the listener should they would do well to seek out Hal Hartley as um, an example of a 90s indie guy who has stayed not marginal but stayed doing his own thing in his own place in his own way with money he has to find not from the Weinsteins I'll tell you that right now uh, now David did you scroll past any Hartley movies you might have seen I have seen uh, Simple Men Oh, okay. Any commentary on the style of that movie? 
on the on the stuff. You know, it's been a, a long time. I remember quite liking it. Right. Um, we don't I, have to worry about it. I like Martin Donovan as an actor a lot. He's mm. and Hal Hartley is a caster of Martin Donovan. <laughs> Boy, howdy. <laughs> That's that's what will be on his tombstone. In 1990, though, uh, we saw the debut of a filmmaker who, like Hartley, has stayed New York. He stayed very New York-y, though. And he is, like Hartley, older than a lot of these filmmakers. Most of the most of the big names we associate with the 90s indie wood movement are Gen Xers, born around 68, 69, 70, 71. Um, Hal Hartley was born in the late 50s. Whit Stillman, who came out with Metropolitan in 90, uh, was born in 52, I want to say. He's 60 now. And so he made his debut at 38 with this movie that he came from a super genteel, rich New York family, I believe, extended family. And he he had to borrow his, you know, rich aunts and uncles' uh, apartments in Manhattan to make this this tale almost an anthropological. All his movies, I think, have this kind of anthropological eye to them where he looks at this old old New York society and the, and the young people who know that it's crumbling, but they they like the trappings they've inherited. He's got a new film, Damsels in Distress. I don't know if it maintains that, but certainly the three films he's made, Metropolitan, Barcelona, and Last Days of Disco, they're almost, they're, they're a very, very sociological or anthropological satire of uh, what a character in metropolitan terms ubs uhbs uh, urban haute bourgeoisie. Uh, have you guys watched Whit Stillman's films? No, I've seen uh, recently uh, Last Days of Disco, oh. and I absolutely loved it. You loved it. What yeah. What about it resonated so strongly with you? Um, I think just this is going to. It's rare to. It's rare to find a film about characters that are truly intelligent, mm. articulate, but neither of those have saved them from themselves. Oh, yes. And that is a Stillman through and through. So I think I would recommend all of his other movies, yeah. even the one I haven't seen, Damsels in Distress, to you, because that's like maybe the core of his whole – not that you say it. I hadn't even thought about it, but that's why you're the critic. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Never mind that I haven't seen a single Hal Hartley film. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. A lot of people haven't. In 91, uh, one of the biggest names associated with Indiewood, although he never went so mainstream, except in certain pockets recently, uh, Slacker came out. Richard Linklater's Slacker, uh, emerging from the Austin film scene. Not his first feature, but his first really seen feature. If you've looked at the um, Criterion release of Slacker, it's got a Super 8 feature, feature-length Super 8 film called it's impossible to learn to plow by reading books which i do find pretty captivating but it i was just not counting it as this first one because slacker was such a breakthrough in its uh in the way i mean i remember my dad telling me he saw this movie and even for him it was a revelation in 91 to see to go to a major-ish theater albeit in marin county and to watch this film where the camera just follows one gen x kind of adrift, kind of with his own thing, character in Austin, Texas, follows his story, then wait, it, now it's following someone else. Now it's, it's, it's following a guy who ran over his own mother. Now it's following someone selling Madonna's pap smear. Now it's following a guy with a van who just wants to take girls to a party he's not actually on the list of, but he says he is. Or it's following a, a guy with a TV for a backpack with an apartment full of TVs. It moves from him to a JFK conspiracy theorist. Uh, it's formerly surprising for a lot of people then who weren't used to that kind of thing maybe not groundbreaking but for me as a kid it was for a lot of mainstream moviegoers it was uh your thoughts on Linklater or slacker uh i'm a big fan of Linklater. in fact mm -hmm. i a few months ago i think got into a bit of a twitter debate with some people about whether or not Linklater counts as a 
major filmmaker, and I. So I that's think, a thicket. <laughs> I, major. What does that mean? Um, yeah, that is that is rough. Um, but I, I think I think he does. His films are um, important enough to to me. And uh, yes, Slacker, which I also haven't seen in a while, but um, I think that's um, maybe essential to this conversation. I, I think right. that, that, that film—that's the reason it's in the title of uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, 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 the title of um, uh, oh, John, uh, John Pearson, John Spike Pearson's Mike Slackers book. and Dykes. Yes, um, yeah, he had a, some instrumental part in like you read these histories, and there's so many. My head is clouded with names of these producers or other or producers of producers or like people in the vast mechanics of the the film procurement, uh, not even production system that you know names like. Names like Treya Hoving or Bill Mechanic or Jeff Lipsky that I can only associate with. I've heard them a million times by now, but like, there's just this vast world we often don't even think about. Yeah. Um, and I also want to say, apart from Die Hard, there's probably no movie I've seen more times than Dazed and Confused. Oh wow. Um, but I think what, what I what I particularly like about Richard Linklater and something that's so so tied and so um associated with this sort of 90s gen x as you say slacker like sort of milieu is the uh and p- characters endlessly pontificating about nothing really important right um and you know with someone like a kevin smith who i assume we'll get to that's uh, that's kind of the joke almost right. but i think with richard linklater and um and slacker days and confused but also uh before sunrise um and then later before sunset and waking life you know um, he's actually getting at something with it, uh, you know, and I think maybe almost um, presaging the uh, internet generation who uh, have endless opportunities to express themselves about nothing at all. Yes, you yes, know, yes. The, we've all uh, done it. Yeah, and we just so, got to own up to it. The the the, the characters in. Richard Linklater's films might are, are they're like YouTube commenters before YouTube existed. <laughs> um, uh, although they tend to be a little more, uh, you know, have a better vocabulary. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but I think he's actually getting at the heart of um, a certain uh, generation and right. the way it feels about itself and the worth of its opinions. Right, right. It's it's you. It's a companion piece almost to Douglas Copeland's Generation X in Palm Springs. You see a very similar phenomenon. He follows his characters the whole way through, but they're the stereotype holds up i guess uh, link later tyler uh he's a filmmaker that um i would say he's a major filmmaker but i have a hard time thinking of him as an auteur mm. um but uh because but of bad I, news bears right <laughs> hey you'll find that on the shelf i actually oh, on, really? on my shelf over there right next to the original i hear that's surprisingly they're right here they're both surprisingly solid well oh, the, the, origi- the original is, is awesome. right right um the, part the new <laughs> one is uh was three dollars the oh, part sure. where the, uh, it's the a form end, of greatness toward the end of the first bad news bears when the woman hands him the uh trophy and he says thank you sir yeah <laughs> it's so like um and just I, trust so, me it's funny with him so dismissive um but what I, one thing that i like about him is that i often find myself liking his movies in spite of myself What's a prime example of that? Well, Slacker, for ex- mm. Slacker, and I'd say Days and Confused and Waking Life, mm. because he uh, he tends to make movies about characters that they might seem a little broad, but uh, 
and that normally bothers me, especially I mean, think about think about the people that you just listed from Slacker. Right. In life you wouldn't really meet these people and he does tend to make movies about life. Right. So it seems like you wouldn't meet these people and that the the there's a I'm reluctant to say this because it has almost too much of a negative connotation. There's some quirk to that that I don't usually uh, care mm. for. But I think I'm on board because I think there's a legitimate love for his characters. And you mentioned like the, the when these characters spout philosophies. And he doesn't – even if the philosophy is malformed or just not really thought through – he takes it as seriously as his characters do. And it reminds me of something from high school. I remember somebody in my theater department, there was some relationship drama like this boyfriend and girlfriend were arguing. And, um, and I remember somebody mentioned that in a very gossipy way and my teacher happened to overhear it. Mm-hmm. And, he sa- and, and I, I like my theater teacher. He's a good guy. But, uh, but he said something in which he said like, He's like, ah, if only they realize that in a few, that like when they grow up, they're going to look back on this and realize how much it doesn't matter. And what I didn't say but wanted to is like, well, they are not there now. Right. It matters a lot They're still now. carving their identities out with all this junk. You know? Right. And so like it's like I have no doubt that when they look back, they'll be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that was so important. <laughs> but you can say that with the benefit of hindsight. We don't have that yet, so just let us have it. Yes. And that's what, that's what Linklater does, is he lets these characters have their opinions, knowing full well that their opinions might change, they might not. But and they're he, very important to them now, and they've, they've arrived at them organically and, and he as just, a function of the personality. He doesn't just allow, in Days and Confused, doesn't just allow us to like look back on it but, uh, and, and say, like, oh, that must have been important to them. Then it actually puts us in the place of, very much so. of high school or... Uh, you know, oddly, me watching Days and Confused when I when I was in eighth grade, you know, um, almost like confirming my feelings about what like being a little older was going to be, um, even though it didn't turn out that way. Like, right, being in high school sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's an important thing you've you've read into the movie, I think, because in the commentary he talks about there's there's one bit where early on a uh, this this twenty something Gen X guy is being followed by by a middle-aged conspiracy theorist who's just talking about various government moon conspiracies and whatnot. And on the commentary, Linklater is saying, I told this actor, and I told every actor, you got to listen to these people without ever judging them. Never, never judge what they're saying. Just listen, just absorb. And that wouldn't have resonated with me a while ago, I think. But now, sort of, we talked about the whole shedding of opinions deal. And that, that it makes more sense to me now. Like, you don't, you're not obligated to judge the moon conspiracy dude. Uh, and it's easier. You'll live a better life if, if I think you don't. But that's, that's just my opinion. What's um, next? Reservoir Dogs, 1992, Tarantino. Uh, what hasn't, what's there left to say about him? I mean, other than I find him to be a director whose films I do find very fascinating, Abbas Kiarostami, he had this interview where he's, they asked him about Tarantino, and I don't know why. I think it was this era. And he was saying, I, I find the man more interesting than his films. And I find his films interesting, but I do find the man more interesting almost because he like is cinephilia in a way. Like He's, he's this embodiment of, of near-insane-seeming enthusiasm for films, and that is expressed in his movies. As an extension of him, the movies will always fascinate me, but as an extension of him, what do you guys think? 
I I think that the two are inseparable, which mm. is good because it means I don't have to listen to him. It means that <laughs> no, I you don't like to hear him talk. It, you know, he seems like a, he, he's fun to listen. to I love to hearing times. him talk. Good, well done. He's got some classic Charlie Rose episodes. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no doubt of that. I don't find him to be insufferable or anything, but it's one of those things where it's like. I, and as time has gone on, I've, I'm actually not that interested in hearing directors talk about their material. I'm much more interested in what I have to think about it, which sounds self-indulgent. But I, I think that's it's part of my critical philosophy. And my hope is that the listeners at this point know what I mean when I say that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, but it's one of those things that like he – his love of film that, that like resonates anytime you listen to him, like just an intense, passionate love of film – it also comes through in his films, and so he's somebody who I really feel like I don't need to listen to him mm. to under because like it's all it's all there. Like there are some filmmakers that like, what did he mean by this? I, I right. I'm interested to find out what he means by this. I never think that with Tarantino, and that is in no way a slight. It sounds like it could be. But the thing that Karastami said about him, I actually, and I know we'll get to Wes Anderson, but I think that applies more to Wes Anderson because mm. they're they're both uh, heavily cinephilic. Um, yes. But I think Quentin Tarantino's films are almost like um, sort of a, a hip hop approach of like uh, of, of sampling, you know, right. and actually making a new powerful thing. I mean, there's not really a wholly original frame in all of Inglorious Bastards, but I think right. it's a, I think it's his masterpiece. Uh, it is my favorite Tarantino film. Um, this presents the thicket of well, is there an original frame in any movie other than the ones at the invention of the medium? And even <laughs> yeah. then, um, he's just more overt. Yeah, Man, we, right. only got, is, we only got a few minutes yeah. left. Come <laughs> on now, but it's it's a uh, I guess uh, a pastiche in that in that sense. Whereas with Wes Anderson, one of the things I don't like about him is I feel like his films are more like an essay about right. film, cult, like like that's this is this part is Louis Bunuel and this part is Stanley Kubrick and, and right, right, right. like it's it's colder. Whereas I I think instead of just Tarantino isn't just listing his influence when he influences when he makes a film, he's actually telling you about himself through his love of film. Mm-hmm. And he's a filmmaker that I think you can watch. He hasn't made that many films. You could watch all of them in a day mm. and see the progression of him as a person and as a filmmaker. A lot. Of, I mean, much as it pains me to say it, a lot of the filmmakers that we'll be talking about today and have talked about, I feel like maybe made their film, people responded to it favorably, and they just kept making that film. Uh, Whereas yes, We'll have people to talk about that. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> we all know who I'm talking about. But uh, the... Whereas Reservoir Dogs, it's a perfectly fine film. It's a really good debut film. I loved it when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I I've watched it. I watched a uh, you know I watched it many times. I probably it's on my shelf over there. I probably have not seen it in eight years, nine years mm-hmm. maybe. And uh, it's it's difficult for me to watch now actually um, because well because there's some stuff that you're very sensitive the, to. Uh, the well. um, the the casual racism of the characters, which I understand is important, and I also understand wasn't, um, w- w- was probably I guess newish at the time to to do that became such a staple of, I think '90s like crime, uh, movies and even into, like television and stuff. Just it it, it now feels, even though I know that it wasn't, it feels perfunctory to me and uh I, ha- I i definitely have trouble sitting through the the casually racist uh mm. dialogue to me it's just that if i i'm sorry i i cut you off but uh to me it's if i'm going to rewatch a tarantino film 
I will watch any of his other films. I find them to be immensely more. It's not Reservoir now. Dogs. Not, not Reservoir Dogs, debut. and of course, not Death Proof. Right. Um, and I'm not even a huge Kill Bill fan. I don't like Kill Bill. But like, but I find I think he's those, if nothing else, are a maturation of his of his stylistic sensibilities. Even if I don't particularly care for what he is doing, um, I find it immensely pleasing to watch the second one specifically um everyone likes that first one and it's it's fine but i i always like the second one more but it's just you just see like the things that he's willing to explore some people some filmmakers i think would be like all right i'm a film fan i'm gonna make <laughs> movies that express my love of film but and you this see this his, movement caused a lot of that yeah yes. and like and he is willing to explore different aspects of of his love of film which is why as much as i don't like he, i don't really even like the impulse that caused death proof i appreciate i appreciate the impulse i'm glad he felt the desire to make it and i feel like he might not have been able to make inglorious bastards if he hadn't made that and this sounds almost a little too dismissive gotten it out of his system right now as i said at reservoir dogs was 92 at sundance and so he's considered to be the leader of the class of 92 as they say um well, should we, I, I know we had to move on, and we really yeah. do because we got somebody else coming. But I, I think um, we need to address if we're going to talk about like the the impact of this movement, the lasting influence. Like I think the um, the the violence of Reservoir Dogs has to be addressed because I think that's one of the things we saw right uh, sure. pervade the culture, mm-hmm. um, and I think even even to this day, you know. Uh, um, that's sort of I'm not even sure what the what the word it's not the film isn't indifferent to its violence but it also isn't mm. um, it's it's really horrific violence that is not not judged or flinched from and there's a sort of slacker insouciance uh, yeah, uh, about similar. it you know where it's it's like uh, yeah this violence is horrible but um, uh, what are you going to do? I guess and that right, almost right, right. presents it in a cool way, yes. or just the, the just Gen a, X shrug. <laughs> what, I don't know. In a cool way, cool in the sense like emotionally cool because this is not unusual for Mister White. This is not unusual for uh, Mister Blonde. Like this is this is the life they chose, but they chose that life so long ago that it's not even they don't even think that they don't even think this is the life I chose. They're like, yeah, what are you going to do? And it's <laughs> and it's just one of those things. And so like. But the relationships are still there. You know, the the intensity of, like, Mr. White's strange loyalty to Mr. Orange and the craziness of Mr. Blonde and the the emotional intensity of, like, the torture scene with the cop. And then you just see, like, just the – and the breakdown of relationships and loyalties. Like, that's what the film is really about. Like, even though I say I don't don't often feel the desire to watch it, I still stand by it. I still Mm -hmm. think it's a good film. And I think what – the downside, specifically with violence, the downside is that people saw the coolness of the of the ultraviolence and they wanted to emulate that without any of the – and seemed to look past the fact that we get a real sense of history with Joe, Nice Guy Eddie, Mr. Blonde. Like these are characters that even if we don't like, we do have a stake in them. Whereas you watch something like Say, Oh, I Don't Know, Boondock Saints. And <laughs> – and that any kind of any kind of character thing that uh, Troy Duffy includes, you can tell he's including for the sake of being cool, not for the sake of 
we connect with these people. And so in 1993, there's this honorary member of the class of 92 that, that emerges, a buddy of Tarantino's, another Austin uh, plank of plank pillar of the Austin scene like Linklater, uh, Robert Rodriguez with El Mariachi, the sort of famous $7,000 movie, um, is, is, is kind of simple run-and-gun tale that's nonetheless impressive for its production uh, that I've seen many times because of, of that, that I've read the book about that is his diary of the production many times that, that's very inspiring despite its... He admits that he aims low with it, but that he was just trying to learn filmmaking and dump something onto the Mexican home video market. It just happened to get picked up by the Indiewood boom. It fit into the zeitgeist. And it seems like Rodriguez has just kind of gone down that road of more more running, more gunning, more more fantasy, and more doing it on the cheap. Do you guys have any anything to say about him or El Mariachi or the way he's gone? I'll let you go first. Uh, man, I don't even know... Uh- I I think he is a filmmaker who um, uh, I don't want to say anything too mean, but he sort of maybe like ran out of steam before we realized that he didn't really have a lot to say. Right. Uh, unfulfilled I, promise is what I was going to say he was. Yeah, I mean, and I I like some of those films. You know, um, I I am actually a defender of the faculty. Yeah. Um, I, I really yes. enjoy that. One of the films he admits in his book, he made a bunch right after El Mariachi, so none could be easily identified as a sophomore slump, which is so like, <laughs> I mean, the guy is smart, and he's, uh-huh. he talks, his commentaries are so chock full of information, and he's, his writing is even very clear and very helpful if you're a filmmaker or a film watcher. He just has this like low self-esteem thing where he's like, well, people have problems at work all day. I mean, this is almost verbatim. I just want to give them fantasy because I can make up whatever I want and I won't have to adhere to reality. So it's sort of like, you're going to stay in that gear? I mean, okay, but shame. Yeah, uh, uh, and I think he... Um, something that you mentioned, Tyler, and something you see a lot in, in, in television, um, like a show will... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, an, uh, of a good example. Um, you know, maybe even justified this season has not been up to last season. I think because the makers realized the things that people responded to, and then just did that. You know, and and forgot about the whole bedrock that made those things more important. Mm-hmm. And so, I actually think um, the faculty has more um, insight about um, small town life, about like uh, being a high schooler. You know, and uh, and the the push and pull between the student and the authority figures at, at, at a school. And I also think, uh, spy kids, which remains my favorite Rodriguez, uh, film to this day. Um, you only like the first seven though, not the last <laughs> nine. <laughs> I've only seen the first two and I, I did not like the second one at all, but I, I still love that first one. Cause you actually feel him in it. It's his, right. uh, it's his most, and maybe you could say only really personal film. Uh, where, whereas I think if you, if you look at like once upon time, once upon a time in Mexico, it's just him. Just I guess I think he's just giving people what they want, but it's really it's what they think they want because the the powerful stuff that you talked about with the the violence in in Reservoir Dogs that it, the the violence is what gets talked about and the you know so the cool shootouts and stuff in in El Mariachi and Desperado are what gets like talked about but it only works because there's an undercurrent supporting it it just just flash and violence in a vacuum is it's just emptiness you know he really at his best which i would say is spy kids and i and i actually like sin city 
and and El Mariachi. It's interesting, like how much more we we use the word soulless. How much more soul El Mariachi has at seven thousand dollars than Desperado or Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Although you still get little flashes, like with the Johnny Depp character, of what that film could have been and maybe what he wanted it to be. But like at his best, he's very Joe Dante like. But, no, but just that, just a sh- the sheer joy of filmmaking and a manic energy. But he just seems to lack that a lot and, of the time. Um, uh, I'm not sure what the if there's a there's probably a better word, but like cheekiness. I think. Oh yeah. Like yes. like Joe, Joe Dante. I think that's a good example because he's. There's always a sense where he's like, "Can you believe they let me do this? Like, yeah. <laughs> I look, at, look at this movie I'm making." And that's yeah. I think with the best Robert Rodriguez, you get like the fun of what he's allowed to do. And I think uh, going back again, I'm going to keep mentioning the faculty. He's probably mentioned more today than any cineast has mentioned in the last ten years. Right, but um, all the cineasts combined. Uh, but like the fact that he gets to do this fun stuff with like like BB Newworth and Robert Patrick and like uh, like uh, you know Selma Hayek and uh, like he's got all this. He's like, I have all this power in this fun cast. Like, right. I get to make them do fun, silly stuff. And there is even a, a, a story told by Elijah Wood uh, on the DVD where um, he was talking about being in the dressing room and it was like really early in the morning and he was just like, oh, all right. And then Robert Patrick busts in and he's like, hey, guys, we're making a movie. Isn't that awesome? And that energy seems to be, even though it was Robert Patrick that said it, that does seem to, when Robert Rodriguez is at his best, that seems to be the energy there, and I yeah. do get some of that from Sin City, though it's an inc- a very dark and, film. I think the stuff you're responding to in Once, Once Upon a Time in Mexico might be just more Johnny Depp having fun than Robert That's Rodriguez. entirely <laughs> possible. That was the same year that he did Pirates of the Caribbean, and there was just that seemed to be when his career was just like, all right, I'm a character actor <laughs> sure. that happens um, to be really attractive. Like I imagine the idea for to wear to go to the rodeo wearing the FBI shirt <laughs> that not only says FBI on it but says it in letters that have to be two feet tall. Yeah, they're just giant. I, I imagine that being Johnny Depp's idea. Yeah, the sense of uh, the fun of filmmaking, the joy of filmmaking. It's it's in Linklater, it's in Tarantino, it's in Rodriguez at his best. It's in even Soderbergh, uh, mm-hmm. though you'd have to hear him say it sometimes to know that. In 1994, a filmmaker who seems to find it less fun but more of a compulsion and still with strong results emerged, David O. Russell, with Spanking the Monkey, the the, the immortal incest film that goes all the way. Uh, I watched this very recently. I was surprised by it's it's both an artifact of its time and still it's still got like a, a it's still got a hard edge to it that doesn't really go away have you guys seen this yeah film? oddly enough people never get really used to incest <laughs> in film yeah it's, i mean it's not necessarily the incest though it's it's just the the way the movie is the tone of it its attitude about the incest is never and I, I think i feel like this is something we'll be returning to the attitude towards that relationship is never judgmental right it's always just like this is a thing that's happening yeah 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 there's a there might be a, a slight air of dread and inevitability to it right but it just it puts us rather than stand outside and say like look at what these characters are doing it puts us inside the minds of these characters yes. and maybe that's why it's unsettling it's uh, david o russell had a hard time getting the money together for this movie for that reason uh, incest is he was trying to get faye dunaway because if faye dunaway was in as the mom as as the jocasta of this 
Oedipus Rex, uh, <laughs> then the money was going to be there. But he couldn't talk Faye Dunaway into it because, as he says, she said, well, I have a 12-year-old son. I don't know if I really want to do this. It's, what's he going to think? And he says, well, no, your, your son's gonna, this is going to improve your relationship because you will have been in this incest film and that will have cleared the air in some sense. This is David O. Russell. You <laughs> Look, know. you clearly want to have sex with your son anyway. <laughs> right. This gets this out of your system. But he went, out, he went with, a, I believe, a Canadian actress uh, who, who did a – I don't know why Canadian is the adjective I use, but I just that's all I know about her. Alberta uh-huh. Watson, I think is her name. Um does a good job. She's up to the role of the uh, incest mom, I guess. But <laughs> it's it also it's kind of like there's there's a lot of this bad late adult like late adolescence. It just feels like kind of a doldrum sometimes, and this is saturated with that. Even outside of the incest, like the kid is trapped, and it's the kid from the uh, the Subaru is like punk rock commercial. From yeah, you ever saw that, David? No. Saw, I, thought, I thought I saw the gleam of recognition. It's on YouTube, but it's this kid who in '92 was. Just in these baggy clothes, flannel shirt, like, okay, this Subaru is like punk rock because it shows you why cars are cool again. And it's not overproduced or said to go back to another uh, term from earlier. <laughs> there you go. And David O. Russell cast him based on that. But uh, any thoughts on Russell's work generally? It's Isn't it sort Jeremy of Jeremy Davies? Ma- yeah, Jeremy Davies. Okay, all right. But I should mention, I should be mentioning that the other movies these guys have done, I mean, he, he went on to do Flirting with Disaster with Ben Stiller. He went on to do um, Three Kings, as we mentioned, Fist Fighting George Clooney on set, uh-huh. uh, I Heart Huckabees, which which I have found to be a whale you can go back to. Many haven't. Oh, I, um, I enjoy that the, movie. The, the Fighter story. is the name of the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You guys, what do you think of David O. Russell? I think now that you've listed all those... I think I love him. Like I, I really enjoy him. I think him. I'm going to gay marry him. He's, he's surprisingly – he's gone, I think – well, I guess just with The Fighter, he's gone surprisingly mainstream. But it's still – I still like that movie quite a bit. Um, but like Flirting with Disaster is just a really fun, well-written, genuinely funny road movie. Three Kings is one of the most interesting war movies ever. I Heart Huckabees is a film that made me happy to be alive when I was watching it and <laughs> – I, well, put, like, well put. That's how I thought. That's literally what I thought. Like I couldn't stop smiling because mm-hmm. it was just. I found it to be invigorating. I think, um, and I, I have not seen those first two. I've not seen Spanking the Monkey or Flirting with Disaster. But, um, uh, and I know we'll get again. We'll get to Spike Jones. But I think of David Russell with the films that I've seen. Kind of like Spike Jones in that his his films managed to seem both dashed off and incredibly clever yes. at the same time. Both dashed off and somehow well wrought. And the 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 dashed off of this is a critique that is often brought up with another film that debuted in ninety four, Kevin Smith's Clerks, the tale of convenience store clerks, one of whom wasn't even supposed to be there that day, uh, Dante and Randall, and the the girlfriend who has sucked thirty seven dicks, and the Asian design major, and. I'm saying this and thinking of the original cut I just watched, ripped from a VHSC tape, the co- totally uncut, the ending where Dante the clerk gets shot, uh-huh. uh, which would have, which would have prevented the cartoons from ever being made. So I'm glad that didn't stay in. Um, but very, very long, much longer than the than the 90ish minute cut of the uh, that actually came out, or 80ish minute, uh, twenty three thousand dollars, black and white. Everybody knows the story of Clerks because Kevin Smith will tell it a lot. And I listen to him every time. Uh-huh. I mean, I've not followed Kevin Smith closely. He's not really speaking to me, speaking to his fan base, I think, ever more as time goes on. But Clerks, I can't watch without getting inspired again by it and kind of having good feelings toward it, you know, good vibes without really being like, that's a model for 
anything I would ever want to do. Do you know what I mean? Your, your thoughts on clerks? Well, um, David's not a fan. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think I'm not a fan because I've become more of a comedy snob, and I just don't oh, find it okay. as as funny. Oh, it's not yeah. that funny. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think it's that funny. When I was in eighth grade, it was right. Uh, it was funny. Um, it was really funny, and the fact that it was so funny, just talking, was something that, to my young mind, was uh, kind of revelatory. Right. Um, but, I guess I should bring this up. You know, with the talking, and I, uh, Kevin Smith has, has said often, he saw sl- uh, Slacker, Linklater Slacker, and he said to himself, "If this counts as a movie." I can make a movie. <laughs> and so he made Clerk. So there's another connection there. But continue. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, and I don't think Clerks is on the artistic level of Slacker, in, no, in, just, just in terms of craft. Um, but, but I don't want to discount he what, on he, the talking. what he made. I mean, he, he did make a whole movie oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that had a, a cultural impact. But I, I, I do wonder if... It is. I know. What, what year was was Clerks? Ninety four. Ninety four. Uh, maybe it was just uh, the most, like the quickest turnaround in terms of being derivative mm. uh, that that you can imagine. That he saw this stuff like like Slacker and this this talk heavy right. stuff and just said, well, uh, you know, I can make something cheap and. Um, shallower than that but i'll have someone having sex with a dead body and, right sure and the 37 dicks thing and like it yeah it's a little more um it's sensationalistic i guess uh attention grabbing because and because of its its language the yeah it's pretty much everything except the talking hmm. that i take issue with because it almost felt like, look, I understand it's one location. Like I, I, right. I get that. Well, they go to, well, they go, to they go, they go to yeah. the f- top. If you count the roof as a location, yeah. right? I mean, he manages to do stuff. Dante's with it. apartment. I, yeah, they, falls they, out of the closet. I guess they do have it's, that. It's because yes. the dog took the bed up. You don't really see, but they talk about it in the commentary. Go oh, ahead. Okay. Um, but uh, but like the having sex with the corpse and like all this other stuff, um, where it's so broad. That it just like that's what bothers me, and part of me is like, you've got because he can be. Well, okay, he, he's the first one to say that he he's a, a hell of a writer. It's like eh, right. you're he a says he's a, not a director. He's not a director. He's a hell of a writer. It's like no, no, no. Doesn't stop him. You're but... a, you're a hell of a dialogue writer uh. when you've created good characters and a strong plot, which is his not his strength. Right. He's created good characters in Clerks. And while there's sensationalistic things to it, the basic relationship of like Dante pining over his ex-girlfriend while still having a perfectly good girlfriend and then his, his friend Randall who Well, clearly, perfectly good. 37 dicks. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, sensationalism aside. Um, Even Scott Pilgrim pushed that for me. Then, Go ahead. But then you've got uh, certain then you've got uh, Randall who – is kind of a, a funny, charming, albeit uh, you know, self-centered guy, but who clearly has like issues with Dante. Specifically, like he's probably quite, he's probably envious of him. That like, so you have this great ex-girlfriend and a great current girlfriend, and you're not happy with anything. Seriously, like there actually is stuff there, and it's mostly under the surface, right. and it comes through. Whether Jeff Anderson meant for it to or not, it still comes through. And so there's yeah. stuff there that I can I cling on to. 
Yeah, he writes. He's written two good characters in that movie, both male. And I don't think he, to this day, has written a, a strong female character. I feel like, and that's the thing is, I feel like the part of Dante's current girlfriend. I think that is diluted by the thirty-seven dicks con- uh, conversation. <laughs> but she's actually quite good. She's written pretty well and intelligently and strong. Uh, but then I think he undercuts it with that. But and by, by, by having her not be ashamed of it, that adds something to her character. Uh, um, and then, of course, he was... I'm sure he's the person you were talking to, were talking about earlier when you said he kept making the same film. Yeah. Because Mallrats is clerks with a bigger budget and a bigger location. It's, and for some reason, I don't like it at all. Whereas yeah, and, I, I can stand by a lot of clerks. And it's so... I mean, even the characters are just like... Is it whichever London twin it is, is is Dante and uh, Jason Jeremy, Jeremy yeah. London Jeremy, is the one uh, uh, yeah and the Jason. one who got fake kidnapped a few years back is real that, kidnapped real okay did he yeah are you sure yeah he faked it the, the police uh, like investigated and they said huh. this is a real thing and then like they quoted him saying like yeah <laughs> guys this that's happened after Indywood it's, that's 2000s we can't worry about the kidnapping <laughs> okay so let's let's move on and, uh, one last question for you Kevin Smith goes on for Clerk oh, Small problem i <laughs> know i i just wanted to mention that uh, as much as i don't really like kevin smith anymore i'm looking forward to hit somebody yeah because because i like hockey and because the idea of making an entire film originally a two-part film based on one warren zevon song is such a cool idea right well and here's the thing i i saw red state last year and it is a deeply flawed film That's but i latest have, if you haven't heard of it but i have and there are parts of it that are great, mostly a function of, of the of the acting, but they're given some pretty interesting dialogue uh, in in those notable scenes. But I, I admire him because it's the f- it's really the f- and I admire Jersey Girl, mm. the much maligned, much Jersey maligned Girl. by because, him even. And you know what? That's bullshit. Disingenuous. You think? He had the desire to make that film, but then none of his Viewersk Universe fans got behind it and so he like had this you know mea culpa kind of thing it's like no 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 you felt the desire to make this film you wrote it get behind it like if if you say it could have been better that's one thing but to say the whole film was a mistake yeah. this isn't cop out where you you did it so that you could get some money or something right. like that and I, yeah i do think that i mean i don't think that I think Jersey Girl has a number of problems, but Absolutely. I, I, I do find myself having some respect for it because I like the idea of him placing the PG-13 limitation on himself mm-hmm. um, and, and you know seeing what he can do without that that crutch, which uh, – I, I mean I, when people say that foul language in comedy and stand-up comedy is a crutch, I usually like wince at that uh, it can productive be. statement. But with Kevin Smith, I think it was. Yeah, and so – and the fact that he went scampering right back to Clerks 2 – yeah, is, still is haven't worth noting. seen that, but then, but then he did Red State, which is so night and day different, and it clearly comes from a place of that he's very passionate about, and I respect it a lot. And there are moments in it that are that are very good, and performances that are solid. But uh, but then, like saying like, okay, after I hit somebody, I'm going to quit. It's like, but it's like. I don't know. It's it, it, now I'm interested again. Like <laughs> now you do it, it's, ah, yeah, Smith. But and that's the thing is he he. It's entirely possible that he'll just keep going, and that's fine. But uh, okay. So sorry. There's a, a there's a lot of commotion, uh, and so 
Um, so I'm ex- I'm actually for the first time since I saw Clerks, and then for the for the brief moment when we were all excited about Dogma, um, like. I'm excited to see what he does next. Mm. And I never thought I'd have that feeling with Kevin Smith. Now, 94 was also the year that Pulp Fiction came out, a certain movie called Pulp Fiction. But I was only, ta- I was only reviewing the breakout right. films. Yeah. Pulp Fiction did business. Bus- Colin, what do you think about any of this? Yeah. You have fallen into your interview <laughs> yeah. role. Yeah, and- right. We'll get, we'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. It doesn't look like the next guy's showing up. So okay. we'll get there. Yeah. Um, but 94, Pulp Fiction came out. It, it businessified the this this indie boom more than anything else uh, made a lot of money for the Weinstein's gave got nominated for best picture yeah it, it gave Tarantino carte blanche for what he can do with the Weinstein's then Miramax now the Weinstein company he's still making movies for the Weinstein's right do you do you know I'm sure he must be yeah, yeah. I think I mean that's he is, he made them as well more than they made him in so, in some senses the impression I get which is which is why you know he can do a two part Kill Bill or whatever he mm-hmm. wants. Um, which but, is not just, I mean, Harvey Weinstein, right. whatever he is, has skills of his own. Yeah, it's, he's got a – and he – I've he's a fascinating dude. Uh, can never tell how much of a cinephile he is. More so than many businessmen in the film world is the impression I get, but less so than he thinks he is. I don't know. Or that, this, we, or that we back in the 90s would have hoped he would be. Yeah, that, I mean, he's a book unto himself, which I'm surprised has not been written. Yeah. Um, I, I think the whole thing with um, – like. Uh, holding on to Hero, the uh, Zhang Yimou oh, yes, film yes, yes, for so yes. long, and like editing foreign stuff that they've bought the rights to. Was, right. Hmm. Uh, that was a big. Even though I knew he was probably an asshole, that was a big like wake up call for me. That oh, he's he's a businessman. There's this in in Biskind's book, Down in Dirty Pictures, as I said, spends a lot of time illustrating Weinsteinian behavior on the part of Harvey and Bob to a lesser extent, his brother, who's the low key, even the more businesslike one, less passionate from what I understand. But this guy spends a lot of words describing like the veins in Harvey's temples, <laughs> like inflating and spittle forming at the corners of his mouth, throttling people he doesn't like, and then sending them flowers the next day, you know, at his, at the peak of his indie boom life. Uh, he, he could do that, I suppose. But anyway, Pulp Fiction comes along. That's how uh, a lot of, uh, say, us, when, when very young or our parents were tuned into what was going on with this movement. But in 95, we see... Yeah, well, before you move, yeah, I mean, because I was in eighth grade in 94, yes. and that was the year that I saw both Days of Confused and Pulp Fiction, right? And those, a banner year, the old yeah. uh, banner year for and old Max. Second features of both directors that we're talking about right. today, or is right. that right? Did he make Before Sunrise? Days yeah, Before Sunrise Con- after Days. Confused, yeah, Days right? Days and Confused Before Sunrise. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, yeah, just so I guess this was uh, you know maybe my talking about Clerks already being part of like the second wave after right. only a few years is not as. Uh, Far-fetched as I thought it was when I said it. No, I think, I think that's probably right on. I, I don't know how you experienced these movies we've talked about, Tyler. Did you see them at the time, or did you go back and, and watch them? Or Well, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a uh, an older brother who was uh, rather rebellious and so sought these things out, and I was young and wanted to be with my cool older brother, yeah. and so we went and saw... Uh, movies that I was far too young to see. <laughs> I saw seven in the Ooh, theater. Oh boy! <laughs> what did what did we say? My what did we tell my parents? We we're saying Richie Rich. Yeah, don't worry, Ma. We're seeing Richie Rich. Yeah. Um, which I saw later. We're seeing Macaulay Culkin's uh, swan not, song. Don't worry, it's not terrible. Oh. But, um, 
It's, it's awful. But uh, so John I saw Larroquette. What was that? John Larroquette was in that. He sure is. I like that guy. I do too. He doesn't get enough work. But um, but apparently he's giant. Uh, Jen saw how to Succe- how to succeed in business without really trying uh-huh. on uh, Broadway, and Daniel Radcliffe is a short guy anyway. Uh-huh. But like <laughs> John Larroquette's like a giant. Uh, anyway, so but no, I saw Pulp Fiction uh, at a pretty young age. I saw mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs at a like when it was a new release on video. So I mm-hmm. was. 11 tw- uh, 12 awesome. maybe yeah and it was and it was great and and by the way i wanted to like i i loved it so much because certainly at that age i hadn't seen anything like it i was probably 12 uh, now that i think about right. it because and i that i like I, I wanted all my friends to see it but not they weren't allowed to see it right. certainly not and i was like but 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 don't you have older brothers <laughs> and um and so so to me, it was a tr- it was an exciting treat to see all of this. And then, uh, as I got a little bit older, um, I actually started watching all these with my dad. Like I saw Fargo with my dad and Thin Red Line and, and that sort right. of thing. But uh, but yeah, and so I think I I had come to really look like just I don't know I don't know how I found out about Clerks. That's the thing that often happens to me, and I don't know if it happens to you guys that like a movie will just sort of show up in my consciousness i i don't necessarily see a trailer i don't i can't trace it back to any one person i heard about it from little but references it just everywhere of, yeah and then before Cluster you know in it your head. before you know it, it's like i guess i gotta see this movie clerks yeah you know because the internet was not a huge thing at the time and at the time i don't think i knew how to use the internet to find out stuff about movies and so but clerks and a couple others were just movies it's like i guess this is something we gotta see hmm. and uh so i think i saw that when i was probably 14 now, in 95, we had a very un-Pulp Fiction-like film uh, debuting Todd Solondz, uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh-huh. And I recently did a Solondz rewatch a, a couple of years back just to get the full, the, the distinct Solondz flavor. And did you, have, have you guys watched a lot of his movies? Did yeah. you see Welcome to the Dollhouse? I have not seen storytelling, and then I still haven't seen the new uh, The Happiness sequel. Oh, I, right, right, right. Life During War Time. Oh, right, the I Talking think. Heads title <laughs> yes 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 but dollhouse i guess then we should focus on if, if you guys have seen his movies generally yeah um uh, i he is he is different but in some ways he's he he fits in almost maybe accidentally in that we talked about the um what you called the gen x shrug i called yes, slacker insouciance yes, yes. but like <laughs> um the the casual you know with with tarantino it's it's violence with kevin smith it's um you know uh, vulgar vulgarity uh, right. in, in language you know the the way that the matter of fact way that he presents things like um and i can't remember the young actor's name who's who i think is great and is in a lot of stuff but him like telling warning don wiener i'm gonna rape you after yeah school. that's that like brendan sexton yes uh, yeah, Sexton the third I think. yeah the third exactly you know, it's, um, i was I th- him at the club once i was thinking how are we going to <laughs> oh god the jokes you could make yeah uh uh, I was trying to think, how can we tell people who don't know about, listeners who don't know about Solon's, what his flavor is? And yes, that idea of these two 12-year-olds, you know, this kid really putting on the thug airs and this girl who just is designed to be the, the most awkward, dorkiest thing you could imagine. And this, this, this Brendan Sexton character is like, you know, three o'clock behind the gym, you get raped. And uh-huh. like, you can tell he doesn't know what rape probably <laughs> is, nor does she, but they're both terrified in their own way and she shows up <laughs> like that, that is Solon's in a nutshell yeah 
and the fact with that and then later with with happiness that like he's he's saying it's okay to laugh at this horrible stuff but he's also not treating it lightly right. at, the, at the same time it's it's um uh i mean i think there's a there's a what's the word it's it's a brand, uh, a very Salonzian only brand of humanism, I, mm. I think. As, as he still... has a, a Paul Giamatti character later in his oeuvre say, you know, I don't hate my characters. I'm not making fun of them. I love them, which seems like that's him saying it. it yeah. And I, oh, and no I, th- question. I, I yeah. think he does uh, love his characters, but I also think he is maybe, if not misanthropic, then at least very pessimistic about people. Right. And maybe, um, uh, I, you know, Maybe he just doesn't expect that much of people, and so it's okay with him, or it's not that big a deal if they turn out to be awful. Right, right. And yeah, Todd Solon's Tyler. I need to. Uh, I've not seen you. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Mm. Um, I think I started watching it years ago and then never finished it, not because I didn't like it, but I think just something came up. And uh, It's a movie uh, that people wouldn't necessarily know. People probably turn it off because, not that you did, but where they didn't know where to stand with it, so they probably got weirded out like this movie isn't judging this stuff for me. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Well, I, I saw Happiness first, so... Oh, yeah. Have you, Tyler, seen Palindromes? No, I haven't. You should see Palindromes, and you should do an episode of More Than One Lesson about it, and it will be the most controversial downloaded episode that's of More Than One Lesson. That's gonna be good! Because that's the abortion movie. Oh, okay. Oh, and I've been looking for something to pair with uh, Lake of Fire. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> what a weird thing to say. Try to go away. But uh, Palindromes, because I, I didn't see storytelling. I heard not good things about it that it was uh, it's, it's missing a third clearly uh, so that's what i can say about it <laughs> um but I, I guess just that it was um like i guess the thing we talk about just someone like kevin smith making more it's just make talent sounds making a movie of the the filled with the kind of things people expect from him mm. i don't know if that's mm. true that's just what i had heard and so not having seen storytelling but hearing mostly negative things i was not excited about palindromes and um, I think I actually like. I think Palindromes is my favorite hmm. Todd Solondz film. Now. Hmm. Um, I did. I did like Happiness a lot when I saw it, and I think for the same reason that uh, we were talking about spanking the monkey and why people are probably uncomfortable with it. Like you said, is people feel that there's not enough judgment, um, and the idea that he can recognize that it's possible for somebody to do something quite terrible maybe the worst thing a person can do um Uh i think i could probably take that maybe off the worst thing a person can do um but that person still has human feelings like you and me right and even but he's not not saying they're still a good person not at all but i I think he's saying nor does he say anybody is a good person yeah (laughs) i I think what he's saying is that being a good being a good person isn't the most important thing maybe that's why he's uh controversial and someone that i like or he throws up his hands at the concept of good person yeah i don't know what that is yeah yeah. maybe you do but i don't and here's my view of the of the world and just but i think i think he and and some that's the thing is some people could look at that philosophy and say this guy hates people and it's like no i think he loves people and wants the best for them but is also something of a realist and maybe a little cynical and maybe a little pessimistic but that's not the same as being just just completely dismissing humanity as a whole. That's why he had to have Paul Giamatti say it. Exactly. I love my characters. And in 96, uh, a director emerges who uses Paul Giamatti well later and also has his own brand of humanism, also is on the older side of the Indiewood directors, also 
might seem to be making fun left and right, but maybe is never making fun. Alexander Payne with Citizen Ruth. Uh, have you guys seen this film? No. I have not seen Citizen Ruth. Have you seen it? Yes, of course. What did you think of it, Colin? <laughs> Citizen Ruth is, is... You know, I saw Alexander Payne recently appear at a screening at the Egyptian? Arrow. Arrow. Of... Um, the new one, The Descendants, his mm-hmm. latest film, which is, I heard a critic say, is everybody, everybody's second favorite movie of the year, which I think is a very evocative way of, of describing The Descendants. Um, but it was, it was The Descendants, and then after that, Descendants, interview, um, election. So new movie, conversation, older film, very common uh, way to do an event here in Los Angeles. And Election had, I, I, I enjoyed both, both movies very well. I've seen Election many times. But elections seem to have a certain fire in it uh, or spark or other cliche that I didn't find the equivalent of in The Descendants. Maybe that's just maturity. Maybe he was less mature, and I'm responding positively to that. But election had this sort of like sour edge to it that Mm -hmm. it's not sour at anything, but just like when you get that odd taste in a food and you can't. He's like, I don't know whether to like or to not like that, but it's not the point if I do, but it's, I kind of want to eat more of this. You know, Citizen Ruth is the predecessor directly of election. It was 96 and 98. And this is a, I think people know this, but it's, it's a comedy like Spanking the Monkey about a touchy issue about abortion. It's Laura Dern as a paint huffer who's homeless. Yeah, she's homeless. Uh, she gets pregnant. We don't know from by who. She doesn't know by who. But she ends up being this pawn in a news battle in this omaha town and ultimately nationally she's a there's this this there's a religious group a pro-life group who wants to take her and force her to have the kid and there's a i guess they just call themselves a pro-choice group both of these are caricatured in their Mm -hmm. own exactly evenly too which is the best part i think um who, who kidnap Ruth later and they try to get her. They, they both, both sides try to bribe her to do their thing because it's a national media issue at that point. And it's in its way a broad satire, but also you get that kernel of non-judgment, even though it seems like he's judging everything. So maybe he's judging nothing because of that. But you get the core of everything that Alexander Payne will become. And I mean, maybe I'll show my hand a little bit to say, I think he's come out of this movement the best of maybe any of these directors. Um, but you see, you see his worldview in, in a, a more raw state, but still, still clearly his own. I mean, it was a, it was a troubled film. It was Miramax. He has stayed away from Miramax since this film because they didn't, Miramax couldn't market it right. You know, it's, you know, it's an abortion comedy. What I think that was more difficult then than it would be now, mm-hmm. but they didn't know what poster to have. They didn't know what ending to have. Um, Alexander Payne knew. Miramax didn't know. And it kind of sank as a result. And I mean, this is maybe why I had to seek it out fairly recently, even though I was an Alexander Payne fan. And you guys haven't seen it yet, but you'll enjoy it if you do. A lot of people haven't seen it. And I think any Alexander Payne fan would find much to enjoy in it, even though it's it's a less refined version of what he is. And Payne has gone on to make, as I said, election. He's done about Schmidt. He's done sideways which santa barbara is still dining out on i can guarantee you that i just moved from there <laughs> oh and, i um yeah i uh, i go to solving fairly uh, no, fairly often danish capital of the central coast but yeah like the hitching post and yes all that stuff. yes it's, i was there not long ago yeah, it's it's still it's still the same but what do you guys think of alexander payne as as a filmmaker based on what you've seen of his i think this fire thing that you talked about uh 
hits the, hits the nail on the head because I don't love uh, I don't I, I didn't really like the Descendants, mm. although I, there are things I I liked about it, especially um, as it went on. Uh, I didn't like the early parts, and then Sideways. I as much as I enjoy watching it, and I think it's funny. I have some problems with it. And I think it has to do with him. Uh, I mean, this is just a guess, but him just be being more comfortable in his life, uh, I think, right. and, and making, leaving Omaha, you know, making Sideways. He's going back to Omaha for the next movie. Well, he's got a road trip movie, and he's got an Omaha movie, so I hear. Um, I'm but, excited. But, yeah, making Sideways, even though Sideways is still about a struggling character, a, right. a teacher who, you know, uh, who is an unpublished author and uh doesn't have a lot of money you know has to steal from his mom that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie oh uh, yes that's a crowd pleaser <laughs> yeah um uh but it's like leaving his his uh midwestern thing behind you see uh, i just don't think that like the sunshine and stuff and especially with hawaii like the comfortable settings don't do him justice he has to mm. do something like uh, the horrible 1970s cinder block uh, high school of election. It's yeah, got, he's got to be in there. Or, or I mean, just does the do you, does would the Alexander Payne today be capable of making uh, about Schmidt and and capable of imagining someone living their entire life and maybe you know right. never rising above a certain level of financial success or or, or comfort you know in in seeking something at that stage in his life his last two films though they are full of good parts make me wonder if he's lost uh, that um, that fire as you put it Edge is another way because when you having heard the Indy Wood movement was very into Edge let me tell you well it just yeah (laughs) have we have we been have you been listening to what we've been talking about? No, I've, I've been mostly thinking of other things. Fair enough. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but uh, it's hard to tell. So, um, but like, yeah, if you actually, he's somebody who, if you watch the progression of his career, you actually see the fire and the edge slowly fade. Now, I love Sideways. I love About Schmidt. I love Election. Did you see The Descendants? I did. And I liked it a lot. And some scenes that I love, I think it's, I, I was quite surprised at how much I loved uh, like George Clooney's performance and uh, his daughter's and, and that sort of thing. But it's interesting because we've been talking about movies that don't judge their characters and that that is in the case of say like happiness or something like that or spanking the monkey. That is, that's edgy. It's refusal to moralize with these people where, well, I mean, there's some moralizing. I think they still recognize that, you know, pedophilia is a bad thing sure but um whereas with alexander payne you actually you know it starts with citizen ruth which i haven't seen but he's he judges everybody with which you sort of need to do with a satire i feel like Mm -hmm. um but then with election i mean he i think he flat out judges tracy flick i don't Mm -hmm. think you see any uh, really any positives to her but i think flick and only flick what was that? Flick and only flick? Or is he judging more? <laughs> well, I think it's because... Matthew Broderick a little bit, but mostly her. But I think the reason we get fewer shades is because the film is, I, I think, kind of through Matthew Broderick's character's eyes. Right. It's it's not really Tracy Flick's story. Right. And so... And then you get... Then you get about Schmidt, which... He... There's a, like, there's a lot of opportunity for judgment, and, it's, and it mostly isn't there. 
Except the son, except Derm, Dermot Mulroney's character, yes. who everything about him is is a judgment, and I'm not totally sure how I feel about that in that film because there is a, a commitment to reality, right down right. to having people talking about like what freeway they took to get into the uh, <laughs> to get into the into Denver. But um, Do you know, I am such a sucker for that stuff. Yeah, I, me too. <laughs> I absolutely like that sells reality like nothing else. There's the reason, like. I, I've sure talked from the show. The Mountain Goats are like one of my favorite bands of all time, and they he he has a song on All Hell West Texas that is the story of someone getting out of uh, jail and then uh, in uh, like Oklahoma or something and driving back to see his like ex in Texas. And the majority of the song is him just singing which freeways he takes and where he gets off. And it is one of my favorite songs. I love that kind of thing. Um, and so like something that is as committed to realism is that like when you see just such a caricature step out and you recognize like i guess this is through jack nicholson's eyes and this is mm-hmm. how and he sees him as a total buffoon but like there's still judgment there i feel like there's a uh, straight up judgment for thomas hayden church's character in sideways and then but with each film there's a little bit less a little bit less and a little bit less and i think it's because he is maturing as a person right which is fine but then you get a film like the descendants which is which is at times very powerful, but I'd say the least essential of his films. And I say that liking The Descendants, liking it a lot. But if, when I look at his whole his whole uh, career, I feel like that's the one where it's just like, yeah, it's it's fine. It, it it doesn't seem essential to me. Whereas all the all those others, even even as the edge is getting sanded off, sanded off. They still all hang together. That one, I think it's still there, but it's, uh, I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem to fit. Well, But maybe s- that's where he's headed. Let me say this. I, I want to land the pain discussion by, I have, I have an apropos quote here from um, Maldrum's book, The Sundance Kids. And we talked about judgment. We talked about, I mean, this is a film podcast that is very wrapped up in issues about what cinephilia is and, and what, film enthusiasm is. Alexander Payne says here, uh, I believe directly to James Mottram, about the character Miles in Sideways, the wine, the wine snob, um, by, played by Paul Giamatti. Payne says, I don't judge Miles' wine snobbery. I think it's funny. I don't know how people read it, but I didn't mean it to be a critique or a mocking of it. There's something funny about it. What's more interesting to me is that it's not about wine snobbery. It's about a guy who, hold, who holds his self-esteem in something outside of self-knowledge. It's about knowledge of something outside of himself. There are so many people who are losers to some degree, but they are experts on this or on that. They drive you crazy with how much they know about it. They're genuinely kind of failures in some way. And all of us have this to some degree. I'm a film snob. I can be a bit pedantic about film knowledge, and I'm quietly proud of it. And I meet people who say, when I go to the movies, I don't want to think. I think all day at work. I just want to let go and enjoy myself. So I put on an Adam Sandler movie. I try to be patient. But I have contempt. What do you guys think of those sentiments from Alexander Payne? Uh, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you do you think the way he does about it, or I think I have, um, I, I think I still have some of that like um, knee jerk contempt. Um, but the thing he talks about about being generally a failure, I think. I, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but I think at a certain point I did come to that realization, and mm. now I am uh, fairly happy with what, where I am in in my life. And part of that is that I understand that the things that are important to me are not necessarily important to 
everyone else and there's mm. uh there there's more to it. Yeah, the day came when I when I realized that like, oh wait. <laughs> I wonder if my general dismissal of all things sports sounds to sports fans like when somebody dismisses the movies I like yeah. as oh, being yes. boring or whatever. Or and then me, the, the minute I had that thought I was like Oh, I get it. We all live together. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing for me is not is not sports. It's it's food. Like uh, you know, I can't imagine why someone would want to watch some you know crappy Adam Sandler movie. But then you know, just last night I was hungry, didn't feel like doing anything. I went to Taco Bell, and there are people who think Run about for food. the border, man. <laughs> there are people who think about food the way I think about film. Who would be aghast that I would do that to myself? Yeah. As a as a guy, I read a lot online. Once wrote Taco Bell Subway. He was complaining about Bill Simmons writing about his love of, the, of his, his Mount Rushmore of fast food. Burger King, those aren't downscale. They're under the scale. <laughs> I always thought that was funny. I don't... By the way, uh, Wendy's is now the second uh, most successful fast food chain after McDonald's. And it deserves to be. Wendy's is the best of the, of the bunch. It sur- right. surpassed, uh, surpassed Burger King recently. Wow. Is it, yeah. Well, Burger King has been you know sitting on their laurels. Meanwhile, Wendy's been working hard uh, and Burger puts out King, a good burger. I, I know this isn't the point of the podcast, but Burger King has that zesty onion ring sauce that will, will I think this should be the point back. of the podcast. <laughs> that, that'll bring me back every time. I'll get any combo. I'll just get onion rings instead of fries. Let me get a couple things. Okay, it's not going not gonna to kill you to give me two things of the zesty onion ring sauce. Well, here's what I'll say. If you enjoy a hamburger with nothing but ketchup and mustard on it, which Wendy's, a weirdo. Wendy's is the way to go. <laughs> One could special. Say, some could say weirdo. One could say purist. Why? How? <laughs> you know, I don't want anything to distract. You got to have some condiments, but I don't want anything to distract me from the quality of that uh, of that meat and bun. Uh, you know, package. Why don't you just put the patty in your mouth and swallow it with a glass of water? That would be pure, right? I got to chew it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Doing then, like it, then it's just a meat patty. Like you gotta have the okay. You gotta, you gotta have, have bun. the bun. Tyler. I'm gonna take you to my home, Koreatown, Los Angeles. Go to Taylor Steakhouse, and you'll see. You'll see what a good meal is. I know what a good <laughs> meal is. Don't get me wrong. I don't like. I'm saying a good Tyler meal. This where, is, this wait, is oh, the okay. ultimate Tyler meal. Where is Taylor's? I think it's Eighth Street. There. I've been uh, there. Um, is it Eighth? Yeah, it is. It's near the R Bar. Uh, yeah, I love spot. the R Bar. Um, but yeah, I went to actually when I worked on. I was a PA on. Uh, year of the dog and our like uh office crew like big final lunch that the like production paid for it's a thing that productions right. do yeah, yeah. like the last week you get to go out to a big lunch we all went to taylor's oh nice nice anyway i it's it's gonna be you're gonna love it tyler <laughs> oh i'm sure i will this is starting I to sound enjoy, like my show talking I do about enjoy, uh, street landmarks i do enjoy uh, steakhouses and such we heard alexander payne just now in my voice talk about adam sandler movies talk about people not wanting to work hard at the movies, which maybe uh, Robert Rodriguez caters to. And 1996, when Citizen Ruth came out, when Payne debuted, we also saw the debut of a director who would go on to use Adam Sandler well and who maybe makes you work at his movies. I don't know. Uh, I, I find they work on every level, for me anyway. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson with Heart 8, also known as Sydney. Have you yeah. fellows seen this film? I, yes. I have. Um, okay, Okay. cool. Not many people have, so you can... We, let's really sell this thing. Oh, but, and yet, uh, of course, I'm going to immediately start talking about other Paul Thomas Anderson movies because I want to react to something you said about whether or not you have to work at it. I think the problem right. with that, not with his movies, that some people have with his better movies, like A Punch Drunk Lover or There Will Be Blood, is that they feel like they need to be working at it when mm-hmm. what they should just be doing is sitting back and letting it 
Oh yes, uh, absolutely. Watch over them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, Heart Eight, yes, I I really enjoy watching Heart Eight, but I don't think that I don't think that we're seeing the, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson the auteur right. in, in in that movie as much as we would in Punch Drunk Love. Here's how I might frame it: that I want to hear you guys talk about it. I'll say that. Paul Thomas Anderson is, is known as, among these directors, these sort of Gen X indie wood directors, the least compromising director, maybe the least compromising filmmaker working, making major films. Um, Hard Eight is the only compromised movie he's made. Uh, there was a cut the studio made. He had, to, he had to secretly steal a work print and make his own cut and submit it to a festival without the studio knowing to even get them to release his cut. Evidently, the pressures were so... There were so many deforming pressures on this movie that it forged him, so goes the story of Paul Thomas Anderson, to be the man who would not back down from Boogie Nights or Magnolia or A Punch Drunk Love or uh, There Will Be Blood, who would push those through at all costs because he was so disappointed with his heartache experience. Do you think it makes the movie that much less than his other movies? Uh I mean, I I just think he's still. Um, I, I don't know where uh, I've not, haven't read a biography of Paul Thomas Anderson, but with with Hard Eight and even with Magnolia and Boogie Nights, I kind of feel like a part of him is still in film school, like still mm. learning uh, who he is and how to how to express himself with film. Because there's, um, it's more. Uh, all three of those films are pretty heavily. Um, uh, well, the mean way to say it would be derivative but also re- referential maybe is the way i mean hard eight ha- has a lot of scorsese and of course the classic dig against magnolia and boogie nights is that they're altman-esque kevin uh, smith has said that many yeah. times no less an auteur than kevin smith makes that charge um <laughs> well uh, there was also there's also a uh, uh a local uh, stand-up comedian her name is holly mills and she had a joke i'm gonna burn her joke but i haven't heard her do it in a long time so maybe she doesn't do it anymore but uh she said i heard after uh, Robert Altman died. Paul Thomas Anderson tried to kill himself, but he just couldn't hack it. <laughs> oh, seems overstated to me these charges. But then again, you know, maybe maybe it's exactly right, and I haven't been looking close enough. And I think there's, I, I would not go so far as say that they're derivative, but I, I would say that um, Hard Eight, I find it to be very satisfying because he's because he creates strong characters and relationships. That's what always mm. saves his films from being pure exercise for me. Um, you know. And and casts his movies wonderfully. I mean, Philip Baker Hall is is great. Gwyneth Paltrow is great. John C. Riley, Samuel L. Jackson, like just really, really solid, well written characters, and their relationships and interactions are exciting and they're vibrant and they're mm-hmm. very. I don't know. They, those don't feel derivative, even if the style, even if the story itself feels like something from another film. Um, and so, but I would say that Heart Eight feels like. Not an experiment. It feels like an exercise. But even within that exercise, he's pushing himself to have it be a real movie with real people that we care about. Mm. Um, I like Boogie Nights more than David does. I certainly like Magnolia more than David does. Um, well, I need to. I've talked about this show before. I want to do a series for the website when I have some time about movies that I that that I hated or didn't like like ten years ago. That people tell me are really great now yeah right. and magnolia is definitely one of them also almost famous crouching tiger hidden dragon fight club and bring it on those are the five i want to do <laughs> people tell me you're good that i that last like. one all i never see it coming because that's always the one you say at the end and i'm always like oh yeah man uh, that would forgot. be a fun one but people i mean people like like bring it on i guess so let, um let me if you have a point to make right now you know go, what go for it 
Do you have a point to make? I have make? a question to ask you guys. <laughs> so if you Damn wanted it. to wrap that up. What uh, well, say? I was going to say is that I think there's a uh, – I think he really found his style with Magnolia. Boogie Nights, still a lot of Altman in there. Magnolia, I think he found his footing and then continued – and then I think he gained his confidence enough to move away f- and just make completely original things with – But the thing – and the thing with Punch Truck Love, the, way, the reason I see it as such a leap forward is that I think like with the best films, it's almost impossible to imagine like – that he started with a screenplay and then shot it and had shots and sounded that it had to be assembled. It seems like it's so whole as yeah. it's presented to you that it's it's hard to imagine that it even had to be willed together. into existence. Is <laughs> right. how I how I often Where, whereas it. Magnolia and, and Boogie Nights you you can feel the screenplay working and you can see yeah. you, you know you can see the work that went into it. It doesn't seem and of course There Will Be Blood I think is a, is a masterpiece. Yeah, uh, I've used that word twice. Uh, this podcast. What was the other one? Inglorious Bastards. Uh, um, it applies. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I rewatched. By the way, I uh, just recently got a sound system, as you know, for my uh, yeah. home uh, home theater. I guess my living room. Um, <laughs> and watched uh, There Will Be Blood the other night, and oh man, that movie is so so perfect. And I'm so glad that my downstairs neighbors are young and hip and wouldn't complain because when the, the stars aligned <laughs> when, I, I when the oil this. shot up through the thing you yeah. know when hw uh, uh H, hw yeah, yeah hw gets gets hurt like the floor like my my drink practically like scooted off the, the coffee table the whole you thought floor there was a t-rex coming yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're sitting here recording in north hollywood we're in in, in the san fernando valley paul thomas anderson made of course Hard Eight, his debut we're talking about, was in Reno. It's a movie about casino gambling, so naturally. But Boogie Nights is about 70s porn. It's necessarily in the valley. Um, the next Magnolia is threaded down Magnolia Boulevard. Yeah. And, ah, but although the, they actually shot on Victory, right? Yeah, yeah. right here yeah, on yeah. Victory and Laurel. I should say, in in the fiction, it's threaded right. down Magnolia Boulevard. But true, you can see that it isn't. I mean, clearly, if you if you drive on Victory and Laurel, it would be like, this is a much more cinematic <laughs> intersection. <laughs> clearly, this is where it needed to be. And Punch Drunk Love is, I believe, uh, set, in, set in... It's set in the valley, certainly, but maybe Sherman Oaks, Punch Drunk Love is. In very brief, is Paul Thomas Anderson the foremost auteur of the valley? Oh, that's a, that's a good, uh, good question. Um, cause if he's not, who is? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess it would be him. I can't think of, uh, of anybody else. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I mean, Pulp Fiction, obviously we're, uh, the whole, um, Quentin Tarantino part is all Valley and, yeah. and references, you know, North Hollywood and driving up Hollywood way and all, all that stuff. Um, and you know what? Actually, even though I have some problems with the movie, a good movie that I think visually represents the valley recently is Drive. Drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they make reference to Sherman Way uh-huh. and uh, Van Nuys, the whole deal. Yeah, but I mean, it just looks like it yeah. looks like like where the like the the the, the robbery uh, sequence like that. It's like oh, that's got to be Sun Valley over there on the other side of the freeway. I yeah, but. Anyway, uh, I, as for the problems I have with Drive as a re- as a Valley resident, I really did like that <laughs> that part um, of it. But yeah, I guess uh, I guess he he would be. And and also I think he's the Valley specifically, but like he needs to be in Los Angeles. Like mm. that is when he's. I'm not saying that as a criticism of like there will be blood. Uh-huh. I'm saying that he he seems really intent on exploring it because of the Los Angeles sprawl and the fact that the Valley specifically. 
one street really does look like another. Like it doesn't Hollywood. It can change from street to street, or really right. Los Feliz, really anywhere else in Los Angeles. Maybe not Santa Monica, but like. Whereas in in the valley, like you could be North Hollywood, Van Nuys, Sherman Oaks, Burbank's a little different. That's its own place, but like you could be in any of those places, and it doesn't really matter. Nino's Pizza uh, yeah. in Drive, like I was like, that, I feel like I've seen that before. Oh yeah, no, I haven't. A- except any, I have. Like any strip mall with a like a uh, auto parts pizza tacos and a florist yeah. like could exist <laughs> in any of those places that you name. Call on the florist. <laughs> um, yeah, and so. So just the idea of people living in what is essentially a an anonymous place, I feel like, is, is, is essential to the type of characters that he's dealing with. And 96 was a big year. It saw a third debut of one of these, one of these major indie wood filmmakers. And this filmmaker is, I would say he has the most fervent fan base of any of these, any of these guys. Uh, he is a semi-namesake of The Last Director. He's Wes Anderson. He put out Bottle Rocket in 96, um, an upgrading of a short film he made. Also, he's, he's the third plank of this Austin, uh, this Austin movement as well. You know, he, he uh, shot down there with, with Owen Wilson, his frequent collaborator, acting and, and writing-wise. Uh, and this was his debut, which, like Citizen Ruth and like Heart Eight, sank to some extent, but... What do you what do you guys what do you guys think of this as an introduction to the career that has become Wes Anderson's whether whatever qualms you might have with how that career what what that career has produced? I, I'm on the record as not being a fan mm. uh, pretty much at all. There's some things about Royal Tenenbaums that I like, but I think that has more to do with Gene Hackman and Jelga Houston and Danny Glover. Mm-hmm. Um, those are my favorite parts of the movies uh, of that movie. Um, and so I, I I didn't see Battle Rocket when it came out i saw almost I saw, nobody did right so it's for almost everybody it was like hey this guy made a this guy made a movie before like <laughs> for me it was after rushmore it was like oh a movie before that's cool like it was not his first movie for his fans uh-huh. it was like the second or third anderson movie they'd seen which is fascinating to me uh, i didn't see it until like i saw rushmore when it came out on video i saw royal tenenbaums when it came out on video and i think same thing i don't think i've seen well we'll get to that in a second um anyway uh it wasn't until after Life Aquatic that I was like, it, like which Life Aquatic almost like confirmed for me all the things that I don't like about him. Mm-hmm. Um, Classically, the complained about Anderson movie. Yeah, uh, and then people will tell me like, well, you gotta you gotta watch Bottle Rocket. You know, you'll get. And him. they would say, why? Why was that? What, what about Bottle Rocket? Did they pitch to you was essential? Uh, I think just because I, I guess the I, I, ne- I guess I never asked people who said that, but it, to me it seemed like well before he had the. You know the access and the notoriety and stuff. This is somehow more pure, Wes mm. Anderson, and maybe it is more pure. But I don't like. I didn't like Bottle Rocket. I was I, like, mm, this is the opposite of. I like Wes Anderson, and I didn't like Bottle Rocket. Uh, it's just uh, so. How does it break from his other movies? For I, you, I think it's that he, as you'll find with a lot of debuts uh, throughout history, is. It feels like he's still finding his footing and he's finding his style first and then in later films is he finding the substance. I find no real substance in Bottle Rocket. It's an exercise in style and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But like Rushmore, you get the rather humorous but also kind of the heartbreaking Bill Murray character. 
in Royal Tenenbaums, you do get some real moments of, of humanity. Life Aquatic, but you get a little bit here and there, but you, not very much. Um, and I do agree he can be funny. Life Aquatic has uh, a line that I just think of it and it still makes me crack up, which is Je- Jeff Goldblum says, this is my espresso maker. Where did you get my espresso maker? And there's a pause and Bud Court goes, we fucking stole it. <laughs> um, uh, that's the very so fact funny that it's Bud Court that yeah. delivers it is delightful. Um, uh, but do, and maybe you disagree, but like I said with Royal Tenenbaums, the things that I like about it are because of the actors. And I think um, a- actors giving good performances in Wes Anderson films, it's all—it's all—it seems to me it's almost in spite of him, or, or you know, that—that's not his. Yeah, uh, that's not his interest. Like he's even though he always also presents stuff in a matter-of-fact way, like Todd Solondz. Mm-hmm. Even though, and, and Todd Solondz's brand of humanism may be very weird and and, and unique, but I, I don't see any sort of humanism in Wes Anderson. And I think maybe that's the big thing that I. And I think this uh, is where against. this is definitely where we disagree because here, like the thing is this: there are the Wes Anderson characters, uh, Max from Rushmore is is definitely one, and then ver- then like all of the kids in. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums, and then almost every character in Life Aquatic, like those are definitely a, like quintessential Wes Anderson characters. But he still did write Herman Bloom, like he, that's still a character he created. He still wrote Royal Tenenbaum, and they didn't just you know it's not like these actors stumbled onto set, and then he's like yeah sure you can play the part like. He cast them, and in the case of Gene Hackman, he wrote him with he wrote the character with him in mind. Mm-hmm. But what's more, but I will say, I do find his style to be somewhat detached. And so, like, there's a scene to me, one of the most uh, moving scenes in uh, Royal Tenenbaums is when Ben Stiller's character like breaks out of the thing that he does, and like his voice cracked because he's starting to tear up just a bit Mm -hmm. and it's with his it's with his dad and that moment it's like oh real humanity and just like but i i think maybe maybe he uses the style as a to kind of distance himself so that when the real humanity does break through which he intends it has more weight it has more power but he still maybe needs his actors to do that and and clearly you and i just disagree because i think um but I don't like the character of Max at all, and I think a big part of that is because I, I think that Jason Schwartzman is a sub subpar talent in you know? general. Or yeah, in, in general, I've never been a big fan of his. And You're crazy. Sa- same with Luke Wilson. <laughs> well, Luke Wilson, he's limited. You know, I'd and say. and I, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow is still a mystery to me because she can be so fantastic in some things, and then I, I don't like her in Royal Tenenbaums and, and and other things. And then the thing that like Darjeeling Limited. Is that to me? Even though it has all of his all of his stylistic stuff, that has I think more moments of raw humanity, including one of the most haunting images ever, in my opinion, on film. Which have you seen? Dark I haven't seen it. Uh, Owen Wilson, his character, has been in a terrible car accident, um, and so in the whole film he's in bandages and he's got you know he walks with a cane and there's a scene pretty late in the film where he i'm almost tearing up now talking about it where he is looking right at the camera essentially looking in a mirror but is looking right at the camera 
as he's unwrapping his bandages and you see the extent of his wounds and the the look of vulnerability and sadness in his eyes and that's a fun it's a function of the actor of course and perhaps we're all reading something into it when we say that he was doing this right before he was making this film right before he did something in his personal life that implied mm-hmm. some depression and, and that sort of thing so if we didn't know that but i feel like if i didn't know that that scene and that moment would still be incredibly harrowing but mm-hmm. there's but there's a lot of humanity in that film and i wasn't expecting it and that film always seemed like growth to me uh and then you and i you and i both liked fantastic mr fox yeah that's fox. what i was going to get to that's um not only do i like fantastic mr fox i love it i bought it recently on dvd and rewatched it um with my my girlfriend's nephew who's seven and had never seen it before and it was did like, he like it he loved it oh great. in fact he i think he has since convinced his mom to buy it and has watched it multiple times <laughs> at home uh and I, I think it's his best film by far and i wonder if part of that is because he's able to have more control over stop stop motion i mean especially a guy who is so meticulous about you know the little drawings on the wallpaper or which games are in the cupboard in royal tenenbaums stop motion seems like of course, it, um, it's yeah. like, it seems like an ideal format in, in in which to work for him, and and I think that's a big part of why I like uh, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and and it's also uh, not an original screen, you know, it's a, an adapted screenplay. Right. Maybe that's part of it too, and maybe yeah, maybe something like that Callan, would, have, would help him. Have you seen Fantastic Mr. Fox? I have not. That that's the one Anderson film I I haven't seen. So but... it sounds like you saw Bottle Rocket. Oh yes. What'd you think? <laughs> Bottle Rocket has this this fascinating starkness. I've seen it less than, fewer times anyway, uh, and watched it maybe less hard than I have the other Anderson films. But there's this, th- there's this green, th- these green expanses and long dry roadways of of Texas that he seems comfortable with that it, he's never really gone back to, but. It's just that's it's really a showcase for his origins in a certain sense. Like this is, this is the territory he came from, and I, I think there's a certain comfort you see him work with in, in that that you don't necessarily see in the later films. Though I, I watch them all with some regularity, they they yield pleasures I find uh, with rewatching. But as you get toward the later '90s, the, the uh, there's a couple of late debuts. Uh, the first one in '98, Darren Aronofsky and Pi. Now, this made a big splash, as I recall. At the time, this is one of the ones at the time I was I caught. Uh, did you guys? I actually, to this day, have not seen Pi. Really? Uh, we'll put that one down with uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. I started watching it, got distracted, never felt the desire to go back. Right. And Aronofsky, it's funny. He, he seems like he should belong with these other directors in these books I've been reading about the Indie Wood years, but and I, I have a copy of James Mottram's book here, so I'll point to the fact that he doesn't show up until the afterword of this book, or the epilogue, um, and he, he gets kind of a tossed-off mention at that, but I mean, he he made Pie in 98, and that was his only 90s movie, I mean, Requiem for a Dream in 2001, I guess, and The Fountain after that, and uh, The Wrestler, more celebrated more recently, but I guess does he belong in the conversation of of these directors? Oh, I think so. But uh, I don't know if he. I mean, his. What uh, what year is this? Ninety eight was Pi. Everything okay. else was two thousands. Okay. And he, uh, I I haven't, I haven't seen Pi, but I think of him as I don't think of him as a nineties director mm. as much. I um, I don't think I do either. Uh, okay. And I I mean I I think part of it is 
Uh, and I don't know, did Matthew Liebetik shoot Pi as well? Because um, I find, as a cinematographer, his work on Requiem for a Dream is, um, though I think you couldn't have gotten to where Matthew Liebetik was without um, the the look of the 90s films. Um, right. So much uh, his, his the look right. of Requiem for a Dream is so much of that decade and, and so much announcing right. like this new. It's very much as a 2001 character. I mean, it's not going to age very well. I yeah, did. and I think that's the biggest reason I think of him is probably Matthew Liebetik. And I do. It's interesting because I guess technically, if we're going with people directors that are culturally relevant that made their deb- debut in the 90s, I guess technically he counts. Mm-hmm. But now that you, I mean, now that you mention that, I think of him. With a different ge- with a different generation, like a Christopher Nolan and, right. and that sort of thing, and, and yeah, I have a section for the the, the questionables where okay. Nolan is. So I guess we can clump him in with the questionables. But Pi yeah. is also I put it on there because it's in league with Clerks and El Mariachi as one of these like cost almost nothing movies. Mm-hmm. His mom famously catered. Uh, he, very few locations, everything handmade, and that in that way it's inspiring. I think for a lot of people of our generation, filmmakers especially, it was like you can actually do this. But it hasn't had the cultural resonance, has it? I mean, Clerks is one thing. Pi is quite another as far as how people think about it or if they think about it today. Yeah. And, and yet Requiem for a Dream persists to the point where it could be referenced on Eastbound and Down last week. Right. <laughs> not with respect always. I mean, Requiem <laughs> no. for a Dream is it's not well regarded, I would say, other than in yeah. certain technical senses i did see it theatrically and it's it was an impressive experience then but i was young and it was made for the big screen i haven't watched it in a while the, I, I remember loving the score for requiem for a oh yeah the uh, yeah. clint mansell score i think does Carlos it quartet did that i think I've got, does it feel got dated now do you think 10 years on or? i haven't seen it since uh, yeah i haven't have you uh, I, mm. if, uh. if, if any film does I mean, that isn't, you know, Exit Wounds. Uh, that, that feels like 2001, I'm sure. Uh, first off, Exit Wounds is timeless. Uh, but also... Um, it's a real singing in the rain. Bruce McGill. He's in that, right? I think I so. I don't know why I remember that. Um, Funny it, you wouldn't it's, it's name Steven Seagal. Or D- DMX? I'm going to the one that I like. <laughs> Bruce McGill is awesome. If we could ever get him on the show, I would, I, I'd sure. be comfortable ending the show after that. Right. So... Um, but no, it's interesting. Go out on top, I say. The way that the way that David talks about Bottle Rocket and that people always say, You gotta see Bottle Rocket. I always heard that with Pi in school. Mm. People said right. like, Oh, you didn't like you didn't like this, or even that, even if even without that framing of, well, I'm not a big fan of Darren Aronofsky, and they say, Well, this'll this'll fix it. Even without that, they're just like, You gotta see Pi, man. It's right. just it's 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 wonderful. You just gotta see it. And Again, I've I watched maybe a half hour of it. Thought it was interesting, um, not interesting enough that when I got distracted from it, I returned to it. Hmm. Uh, twelve, you know, uh, not twelve, uh, like ten years later. Right. But uh, but yeah, like that's one that people seem to think is like the that's that's pure as people say. Like it's they they don't have to, he doesn't have to worry about any of that. And so the question that I have, and I know we've been going on for a while, so I'm reluctant to ask it, but like the attitude that that I think we we run across with a lot of these, like people saying that like Clerks is the best Kevin Smith, El Mariachi. I don't think people say that with Robert Rodriguez, but I think you'll find some people to say. Um, what do, do Robert Rodriguez uh, acolytes? What do they cite as his best film? It's his 
Um, Kevin Smith had a point about his own movies in a commentary. This was the commentary of the original Kirk's, Kirk's Clerk's Cut that uh, I mentioned watching. He says, he's actually his producer, Scott Moser, who is his co-host on this modcast, uh, says, you know, Kevin, because Kevin Smith brings up that people, there's like, man, there's people who still say Clerks is my best movie. Yeah, what's, what's going on with that? And Scott Moser says, dude, there's there's people who say that about every one of your movies. People say Mallrats is your best. Mm-hmm. People say Chasing Amy is your best. People say Jersey Girl was your best. I think Rodriguez seems to have that same thing going on mm-hmm. where each of its each of his films has a separate cluster of adherence. I don't know. What do you think? That that sounds right. I mean, I, I, I know that I, to this day, feel like someone's going to laugh at me when I say that Spy Kids is my favorite Robert Rodriguez right. film, even though I say it with pride and fully believing it I to think be I true. might say it my, uh, myself. But I guess my my point is, and just among film snobs and having gone to film school, you run across people who they will immediately point in the same way that people will. And I, unfortunately, I think I was like this uh, to a certain extent. Point to older films and say they won't say this overtly, but the implication is just because it's older and thus it is good. Or a foreign film is better than American simply because it's foreign. Like there, there's an exotic nature to it and an inacc- uh, inaccessibility that people seem to value. And I feel like with debuts, specifically of, of people of filmmakers that like we kind of came that we that we came up watching and appreciating, I think uh, there are people that just uh, point at Bottle Rocket Pie and they're like these these are like. They seem to point to some kind of purity and say, like, these are the really like when the when the person didn't have to work in the studio system. Like, I think have, it you, also, have you encountered that at all? I think you also tend to get it. We'll go back to early in the episode and talk about music. You tend to get it from people who were people who were aware of the thing before it got big. Oh, always yeah. want to say, you know, if I mean, before it, it was cool. Yeah, if you're someone who bought Bleach in 1989 before Nevermind came out, Bleach is probably going to be your favorite album because it's an emblem of the fact that you were into it before it was cool. Yeah. So I think that's that's part of it. Okay. All right. I was trying because it definitely is something that you run across, and and I think that's that that's probably the way to look at it. Is just like, oh really? And and you run across it with like, oh, Silence of the Lambs. I'm more of a Manhunter person myself, and nice. which I I am that. Guy. Yeah. So um, aesthetically, I can't help but take this out of Manhunter. I mean, it's well, yeah, so striking. But and cold, so the, cold. A final brief question on on Aronofsky. These filmmakers, I am looking at the list. You know, I see obviously, obviously, a guy like Kevin Smith or the Wood Stillmans, the Hal Hartleys, the Alexander Paynes, the Wes Andersons, in his own way. These are filmmakers who are respected for having a sense of humor. Typically, uh, you know, their movies are full of moments that'll make you laugh depending on your personality. Aronofsky seems strangely stripped of that. Is, is that true to your experience of his movies or, or not? To the point that it's jarring when there's a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> like there's, a, there's a, a scene in Black Swan, which was my favorite movie of that year, much to my surprise, uh, where in the midst of this incredibly overwrought, and I say that in a good way, uh, <laughs> this incredibly overwrought emotional drama where this this woman this woman is losing herself in this part and all that, and in the midst of it, backstage a guy who's dressed like this demon that has been terrorizing her is like, "How's it going?" <laughs> he, he, yes. just, he does because it like it, it brings us back into the reality. It's like, yeah, it's just people doing their job. Uh-huh. That, that's it. And like I rem- I I was in, you know, I did I did theater, and I remember like backstage we're all just hanging out and laughing, but then we'd have to go on stage and cry and all that. 
And it was funny, but it was so out of left field for any for anything that he does that part of me is like, uh, it seemed almost crass. <laughs> I, I also think, yeah, not only does he not have um, a sense of humor, I don't think he, he, he often doesn't even seem uh, aware that something could be funny. And I mm-hmm. think that's like uh, a lot of the, and that's something you see in a lot of films that are quote unquote so bad they're good, you know? Um, but I, I, and I'm not saying that uh, Requiem for a Dream is quite so bad that it's funny to watch, but it is so self-serious that uh, it doesn't even seem to recognize that there's the potential for comedy. Well, it's like the guys with the brain injuries who only draw half the clock. You're like, there's another. I mean, you could draw the other half. No, what? No, I don't think I, I, don't, that's, I drew what I saw. That's, that's the clock. So you're right? saying Aronofsky has brain damage. That's one explanation for his lack of... I'm, I'm not saying a movie needs to make jokes. They don't. The butt jokes of Kevin Smith we referenced off mic before. I don't need that, but it is like like he, he, he hasn't just... I don't really blame him even. It's just like he didn't see this part of existence, and so he didn't put it into his movie because it's for him not there. Yeah, you know but you I get mean? too much of that, and you get 300 in the Zack Snyder movie. Right. Which is so yeah, or you, or any, you get any given Zack Snyder movie in <laughs> yeah, some sense. Yeah. Um, the final debut I have in the 90s, the, the last of the indie wood auteurs to debut, 1999, considered a bit of an... Uh, on, on critics' parts in general, on your guys' part as well, and in many of the books and uh, Annus Mirabilis of, of film, 1999, uh, being John Malkovich by Spike Jones, and credited equally in some sense to the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. Uh, some some people seem to regard that as a script that could have directed itself. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it has been said. Um, I don't agree with that. Right. At all. Well, you can get to that. I mean, certainly, uh, I don't think anybody here is going to sign on with that line. But no. you know, you got to get it out there. Spike Jones goes on to direct adaptation, also a Kaufman script, and Where the Wild Things Are. What can you say about the fact that a movie like Being John Malkovich at this point in the Indie Wood years could get as big as it became and as popular as it became and as mainstreamly produced as it was? That's part of the weirdness of 1999, my <laughs> friend. Yes. But I, mean, I, I David Russell was Spike Jones earlier, so I'll go back to that. The 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 cleverness I think is a big part of it, but uh, I mean also something that uh, that became uh, this has become almost uh, boring now. Celebrities playing themselves, it, mm. you know. Uh, I guess at, at this point, you'd had it on the Larry Sanders show, uh, but that wasn't a mainstream uh, breakthrough. Um, you had John Malkovich playing himself, and then later that would give way to all the you know extras and Kirby enthusiasm and uh any number of things um uh, and so i think maybe it just hit that part of the 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 zeitgeist at the right time that mm-hmm. people uh were um uh, that it's, i guess celebrity the concept of celebrity was kind of folding over on itself and people were becoming ironic about it mm-hmm. um so i think it, it might have succeeded partially because of of that but also because i think the the difference between spike jones and david o russell is that i uh, i don't think and i don't want this to sound like an insult but i don't think spike jones is an intellectual uh or, or makes according films to all the portraits of these books he is not <laughs> yeah. i mean adamantly not yeah he this is a guy who grew up on with dirt bikes and skate videos like that was his film school was yeah. uh, skating videos yeah and that part of and he made music videos as well and right. that's part of why i think of him maybe more 90s <laughs> because i know yes. like he did that uh, uh wax video which is just the guy on fire i don't know if you've seen, <laughs> seen that video. 
And uh, there's no more 90s band than Wax or <laughs> or 90s band name. You can't right, sure. <laughs> It's uh, the, the uh, Locus Classicus of everything in the 90s. Right. It's right there in that video. Um, uh, but uh, I, So I think maybe part of why um, being John Malkovich works in I Heart Huckabee's works for me but didn't hit with as many people, uh, even though they seem equally, you know, uh, meta and mind-bendy, you know, is because uh, I Heart Huckabee's is an intellectual film and being John Malkovich is uh, just pure emotion. Just he's just like hitting uh, these points and telling this. It's really just a story um, of a of. It's just a story of unrequited. I guess I don't know if you call it love, but just infatuation. You know, he's uh, he's a loser. He's not happy with his wife. He's infatuated with Catherine Keener, and he does all this for her and he almost has her and then he loses her you know and that that story could be told and could be related to by anyone regardless of you know which philosophers they've read mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting because you you said that uh, he's an emotional filmmaker and I'd say that's that's true but uh I'd say emotional isn't isn't necessarily the opposite of intellectual I'd say instinctive Everything okay. about his movies, from adaptation yeah. to where the wild where the wild things are, feels a little bit more thought out to me than uh, being John Malkovich in adaptation. I think maybe that's because it resonates so much with you. I, I really do. I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head with instinctive because I, I think that's why where the wild things are. I think was my favorite film of that year, or it was I think up it was, there yeah. on the top ten list. I went and saw it in the, in the theater three times. You know, within it being open for a couple weeks, mm. I, and I, I think it is. Uh, it captures that instinctive nature. And I think it's why he gels so well with Charlie Kaufman, because Kaufman almost has this idea of, it's in my mind, I gotta get it out. Now, I know that he's, I know that he's a more disciplined writer than all that, but it feels like he just has to get this stuff out, and, and Spike Jones is always like, well, I got to put it on the screen. Whereas, whereas, like, and there's a lot of craziness to, to I Heart Huckabee's. I think that's a good movie to bring up uh, to make the distinction. There's a lot to it, but you know that everything in it, David O. Russell, like, thought, like, is this something that needs to be in here? Okay. No? All right, I'll take that out. And just, like, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But there's a, there's a surprising rawness and urgency to all of Spike Jones films that makes them feel a little unsafe uh, at times. And uh, as, as I think almost anything that's pure instinct will feel unsafe. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's why, and I think that probably does come from his not being an intellectual and his being like dirt bike videos and music videos, just like getting in and getting it done. Yeah. And, and, and- um, music videos and, and probably those sort of sports videos are about they they aren't even about story they're just about moments yeah. you know and um, uh, I've this is gonna sound uh, like I'm being glib or facetious but like Glee when it's at its best is because that's what it's about it isn't about the story it's about hitting these these highs and uh, and, and Spike Jones can definitely do that I mean I, I don't even like adaptation all that much, but that, I think that's more. I don't like Charlie Kaufman's screenplay. Uh, mm. I, I like the choices that Spike Jones made, but like the moment with I think it's Meryl Streep in a hotel room where she's high, like 
even divorced of other things, that's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, let me go through quickly. I'll blow through the names I did not include in this sort of history we just did, and tell me if I made an error in in so doing. No problem. Um, there was. There's David Fincher. He's brought up a lot in these books. Uh, he, of course, in the 90s made The Game and Seven. And he debuted with Alien 3, though, kind of thrown to the dogs on that one. Not an assignment mm-hmm. he would take today, but that made him resolute in a way that that Paul Thomas Anderson's experience with Heart 8 made him resolute, I think. His movies are always slick, so I, I felt he didn't aesthetically fit, though I do enjoy watching them. Um, and and also, I don't think, I mean, there's nothing independent about Alien 3. Yeah, exactly. Right, like He was, started in the studio. It was the second sequel of something, and even though right. he had it taken away and he had a clear vision, as he always does, just he never had that first that right. first film that we've been talking never about. Never the shoestring film. To. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, he came out uh, came up in a different way. No, I, I, oh, go ahead. I, I also just think that... Um, David Fincher, uh, like like Paul Thomas Anderson, is someone who kind of had to make a few films that were more uh, derivative or at least just sort of straightforward um, uh, before he could have the confidence to emerge as himself. And it's seven. Him, seven is pretty solid, and like it's, I, I, no, I think it's solid craftsmanship. But okay. I don't know. I that forgot it has, Fight Club. He sorry. He he did Fight Club as well as yeah. oh, the yeah. listener. Um, <laughs> Which is very fitting in with his style. I mean, it's not a break. It's the progression of you know the game seven fight club. Oh, sure, and that's that's yeah, that's the way he's going. I think it's it was going. seven, right? The game seven, seven fight club. Seven. No, the game, game seven fight club, right? I think the game came out after seven. The three movies he made in the nineties were right. those three movies. Okay, um, <laughs> like those were his indie wood area. and they get considered with these. Wes Anderson, Kevin Smith, Tarantino films as well. Like the authors of these books, put him right up there. I didn't feel like he belonged in this. Yeah, I, I, I can see why they put him up there because he is uh, has definitely has auteurist tendencies, but he's just not indie. Right, right. And yeah. but uh, that's that said, uh, as I often say, Zodiac is uh, one of the best American movies of the last. Indeed, 10 years. indeed. Uh, uh, Two thousand seven. If we're speaking of uh, miracle years, Damn there's right. another one. Now. Uh, Noah Baumbach is a name uh, associated with Wes Anderson often, mostly associated with the 2000s because he made Greenberg, Margot at the Wedding, Squid and the Whale all in the 2000s. His debut, uh, Kicking and Screaming, though, held up as emblematic of sort of a Gen X sensibility. I believe shoestringily made in, I want to say, 95, 96. Um, does fit in individually, but I didn't see a way to put him into this tapestry, and usually the books can't either. Do you guys think he belonged? I haven't seen Kicking and Screaming, so I can't really okay. speak I to ha- it. I haven't, but I also wouldn't include him simply because he never got the success that any of these other directors did. Like, right. he never became... I mean, my mom knows who Quentin Tarantino is. Right. There was never the Noah Baumbach force on the culture. <laughs> right. Brian Singer, uh, director of... His, his debut was Public Access, uh, this sort of thrillerish, kind of neat techno... Not techno-noir, but it, it was in 93. It's still kind of overlooked. But he went on to do Apt Pupil, the Stephen King Nazi story. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on to do the X-Men films. The Usual Suspects recently. as well. And the Usual Suspects is the one that everybody brings up as specifically smart-talking-crime-guys movies. Mm-hmm. Is, and I haven't really laid that out explicitly, but that was a big current in IndieWood. Did Brian Singer belong in this history? Hmm. Uh, I I wonder because I think his uh, I'm not a gigantic Brian Singer fan. I think his best films are the the two X Men films mm-hmm. that he made, and those aren't. The, it was 2000 and 2003. Is that right? 
Yeah, that sounds right. Um, it, so I guess that's why and I, I guess don't the think Superman uh, reboot is also him, isn't which it? I haven't it seen. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, Usual Suspects is the perfect. Uh, like it was the perfect thing for me when I was in ninth, tenth grade. I watch it now, and it right. doesn't. It doesn't. And the work perfect for thing for nineteen ninety five. Yeah, four, yeah. Five. yeah. It's, so it's it might it might be a zeitgeist thing that doesn't last. It's a it's it's still a fun movie to watch, mm-hmm. um, and I still enjoy it. And there's still some fun performances in there. Um, but I think. I think there's not a whole lot of character development. It's uh, I think a lot of people just got bowled over by that twist, and uh, mm-hmm. right. and that's what they remember. That and, and like that twist, it's like wow, that that that's a hell of a twist. Let's give it a best uh, best screenplay award. <laughs> it's like and that twist involved Kevin Spacey. Give him supporting actor. Like <laughs> that that seemed to bring people incorporate uh, these other things. But uh, but I'm inclined to say that he might count right just because he had public access i would have to see public access right that's worth a a view now when we talk about today a wes anderson or a paul thomas anderson or even a steven soderbergh we often bring up uh, sophia coppola because her films have in the 2000s garnered a similar audience but she only had one 90s movie the virgin suicides does she belong in indie wood because of that late entry into the decade I, I i wonder i mean if you're part of a filmmaking dynasty <laughs> I, I hate to put it she that way she didn't have but to like, struggle she didn't have to struggle and i i have a tremendous respect for the choices she has made as a director and i i think i like all of her movies but at the same time like is like she had virgin suicides and it was all her own it's like well of course it was right. she's a coppola and <laughs> so like she didn't have to scrounge together the seven thousand dollars or the or put it on credit cards. I know I know that sounds terrible, and and you know it, it's still a film that she made. And but I I think of her much like Aronofsky. Like I feel like yeah, I'm I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this admittedly arbitrary thing of like does this feel like a '90s film or like an aughts film? And I don't. I'm trying to put my finger on on why. Virgin Suicides, even though it came out in 99 and I think is uh, a brilliant film that mm-hmm. I've rewatched many times. Uh, why it feels more 2000s to me, I think there's a... It's it's about disaffected suburban youth, which sounds very 90s, but uh, the, the way that it's more internalized as opposed to being externalized, like in R- Richard Linklater's films, maybe that mm. that feels more... Uh, I mean, it's... And it's, period. Yeah, it's it, yeah, um, but it's, it's narrated almost like you can almost imagine it as being like a series of blog entries. And, yes, and I think that's why it feels more two thousands to me. Hmm. And there's two Englishmen, first of which Christopher Nolan. I mean, he's he's out because he's not. This is a U.S. movement I've, as I've considered it. But his his debut following is uh, one that I can't help but respect strongly because I, El, El Mariachi was seven thousand dollars. Following was I believe six thousand. And it had the sort of pie, grainy black and white look. It had the, it had the, it had the same use of tension that maybe he's he's, he's lauded for these days. Have you guys seen Following? Yes, ninety seven. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, do you think Following would get him into this discussion? Even if if we say nationality doesn't matter, this is if Nash uh, and he's an honorary I, American. Is he? Does that make him one? Sure. <laughs> um, he lives in Hollywood, right? Damn right. I don't know, um, but the uh, I like claiming him. But uh, 
I guess I guess it would count because he did he did all the stuff that uh, that we're crediting these other filmmakers with, and mm. he really established a style which it, that would that he would later go on to use with uh, Memento specifically, like just jumbling up the editing. Um, Memento almost almost feels like a ni- it's still a piece of the '90s uh, in terms of film culture that's just sort of happened to come out in 2001. Yeah, it does sort of feel like that, but like, mm. um, yeah, but like following, I, I feel like he's. Much like all these others, it does feel like an exercise, but he and but it's nothing that he had to get out of his system. It's something in which he employs stuff that he would later not necessarily perfect, but like really start to hone. And following is a is a fun film, and there's the tension, but it, he he structures it like a puzzle, mm-hmm. like like everything. Uh, gets thrown around. Uh, the narrative gets, um, you know, uh, s- screwed up a little bit, and it's because, like, oh, you got to figure out this puzzle. And it's like, yeah, but there's no real rhyme or reason to <laughs> what scene gets put where. Whereas Memento, there's a definite structure to the uh, the jumbling up of of the narrative. Um, so yeah, I think I think it would uh, I think it would count if he were an American, but he's not. So that he's, he doesn't, but I, why are we even talking about this? <laughs> and yeah, um, why then one, one more, David, would you like to make a case for Danny Boyle or is he, is he, are his 90 movie, nineties movies, uh, which would include besides train spotting, what shallow lifeless grave, ordinary, shallow grave, lifeless ordinary. Do those, do those put him in this, in this aesthetic? I, I think definitely because I think of him as so much a part of the Miramax thing. Yes, um, yes, yes. Sundance and Miramax being the driving forces of so much of this. Yeah. Um, but that, um, I guess uh, the sort of postmodern um, attention deficit disorder, like uh, messing with the presentation, you know, you know, fisheye lenses, and you know, the shot at the end of Train Spotting with Renton just walking away with the bag, you know, just weirdly starts like on its side, you know, the yeah, whole time, right. and like flips over, mm-hmm. like uh, that thing, much like the uh, narrative. Um, experimentation, linear experimentation of Memento feels uh, a part of a part of the '90s. So yeah, I mean, other than the fact that he's Scottish, he definitely seems um, seems uh, of this movement. Not just Train Spotting, uh, Shallow Grave is, uh, you know, I mean, you talk about the smart talking criminals. Uh, I mean, these Shallow Grave is more noirish in that it's non-criminals being roped into uh, a criminal life, but they are still like uh, you know. 20 something you know they're very urbane you know mm. they're 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 cool people the people like the people the filmmaker probably hung out with at that time right 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 uh, shallow grave feels very 90s and i mean uh, obviously the costumes and hair are very <laughs> very <laughs> 90s as well was shallow grave his first film uh yeah right yeah, i think so i'm okay. trying to think i can't think of anything earlier danny right. boyle fans send your emails to tyler and david certainly I used to <laughs> they want to hear from you obsessive about him but um i don't know i think i thought it was and and frankly everything about it doesn't it seem like a first film like yeah. as far as lower ambition in scope right but not he, necessarily in he's story. also like a david russell going more mainstream with the fighter or like um uh, Alexander Payne losing his fire a little bit. I liked 127 Hours and I liked Slumdog Millionaire, but I I do feel him. I guess uh, the well, the 15 year old punk rock fan of Train Spotting would call him 
would say selling out, but I do see him being sort of brought into the establishment in the, um, uh, I guess, pedestrian themes, maybe? I think the types of stories he tells, that has changed, but his style has not. Like, if you watch Millions, like, Millions is, like, about these... Yeah, cute kids who these adorable moppets. But like, it is there is a manic quality to it. And the um, opening of 127 Hours looks like it could have been made in 1997. Yeah, like, yeah. The, it's very video seeming and like you know the the split screens and the like mm-hmm. club music. It just yeah. So to put a cap on the history, you know, there's a film I should bring up that I watched because of you guys mentioning on the show. In fact, uh, first of all, I mentioned another film that you brought up earlier, The Boondock Saints by Troy Duffy, mm-hmm. um, which is a film that had a burst of popularity on video and which lifts, it seems, the elements of a lot of these indie wood films that were popular. A, a smart-talking crime guy, a sort of self-conscious, not quirks, We probably but, throw quotes around smart. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you know, none of them are quite to the level of what they're lifting from, but, you know, uh, shots that would be called kinetic by the back of a video box. Um, <laughs> a lot of these individual elements of indie would coalesce in, and it was cheap. It was I mean, like a $2 million movie, not six grand, but it had its moment. It is now very poorly regarded, it seems like. And the, the documentary Overnight is the one I watched from your guys' recommendation because, Geez, I can't get it out of my mind. It's, it's a portrait of this guy, Troy Duffy, and his sort of behavior when it seemed like he was going to be one of these Indiewood directors. Harvey Weinstein gets gets him in his empire, takes him under his wing. Uh, he thinks he's getting a combined music deal and film deal. And it just culminates as, in a sense, sometimes I think the Indiewood movement did with this shirtless, drunken Troy Duffy <laughs> in a breakfast meeting going on about how he's is this word salad about he's ho- how he's hollywood's new hard on and the the business uh, types the suits are just trying to get him under the rug at that point yeah. like we went we went too far this this train went off the tracks how symbolic is that film and that man of the end of the of the creativity of the burst of creativity the flowering that was that were these years it's uh, it's almost serendipitous. I mean, mm. it, I mean, it is just in terms of story. It's one of those right place, right time documentaries, like the King of Kong. Like they just happen to be like filming it, you know, to catch this. Um, but it it does seem perfectly uh, um, uh, symbolic of what happened. You if you if you had a documentary about the making of. Uh, um, Heaven's Gate, it would be the same thing for the new Hollywood, right. uh, I guess, crashing and burning. Right. When we're there, it's just the films got so bloated and so grand, the structure couldn't support them. With with the Troy Duffy's of the world, the idea got to be so much you can get to be the director rock star with not much money but a lot of attitude, man. Uh-huh. Yeah. And if you're just enough of a dick yeah. and you really just you really punch your audience in the face uh, with your movie, you can... You can be Hollywood's next hard on, is yeah, and I think that's we still see that like uh, so much hype preceding a thing that everyone has an opinion on it before right. they even have a chance to to judge it to see it, uh, you know, in its finished form. Did you ever see that documentary hype about the Seattle? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I've, I've watched. I think I've seen all of Doug Prey's documentaries. That was resonant because I remember a lot of it. Right. It's a good movie. The uh, another uh, little symbolic thing and by and by the way in a moment we can't end yet i'm sorry in a moment uh I, i'm going to talk about a filmmaker that absolutely belongs on the list and we didn't sure. talk about okay we need to end soon though <laughs> okay right um 
But uh, we'll have you. Will you say say your thing? Say the filmmaker. I'll ask one last question, and we're out. Okay. Okay. Um, the thing was a uh, a joke that Billy Crystal made at the 1997 Oscars for 1996, and I've mentioned it on the show before, in which at the time Shine, uh, Fargo, English Patient, which was considered an indie film at the time, Secrets and Lies. Four out of five, and then Jerry Maguire. Four out of five of the Best Picture nominees were independent films, and he made a joke. It's like, he goes, this is the year of the independent film. You know, t- small movies with small budgets, and, you know, Hollywood's going to follow suit. It's going to make, and and next year they're going to make a lot of very small movies for $200 million. <laughs> and that, that, that joke, which is, I don't usually find Billy Crystal jokes very funny, Gosh. but that joke I think is a pretty good encapsulation, too, of what Hollywood did with these mm. filmmakers. Hmm. Michael Moore. My, yes. Well, we mentioned Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, right. but the but documentarians we haven't discussed. It's true. But like, but he. I mean, speaking of like director is rock star. I mean, he is. He's known way more than his films at this point. Right. Um, and but that's the thing is like he, his his films in the nineties were a bit more front loaded, and then he moved into TV for a good portion of it, and then he really established himself in the. In the in the aughts with uh, Bowling for Columbine and, and all then that, I'll mention because um, I did mention at the beginning Tom DeSillo specifically. Yes, of course, Tom DeSillo. I mean, but and you know, there's they, there's him and Alexander Rockwell and mm-hmm. Allison Anders, and they, you know, they they were um, critics Lisa, of their Lisa own. Chiladenko, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, Nicole Hollow Center. The 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 omissions are limitless, but yes, yeah. Tom DeSillo. Uh, uh, but I just I just do we mention any women actually? Um, Sophia Coppola. Sophia Coppola. Sophia Coppola. Yeah, yes, Lisa Tolenenko, um High Art is definitely worth checking out. And uh, Nicole Hall of Center did, when did Walking and Talking. Is that what her yeah, first one was? Right. Um, when so. did Tamara Jenkins? Uh, well, Slums of Beverly Hills was, yeah, that's 90s. Yeah. Um, hmm. And that's, that, that's, that's worth seeing. I think The Savages is a much better film. I love it. Uh, I, I still love Slums of Beverly Hills. But I think Living in Oblivion is just so germane to this discussion. If you're interested in this topic right living in oblivion is almost it, it's esoteric about it in, right it satirizes the making of one of these yeah. movies as does uh, alexander rockwell's in the soup both of which star steve buscemi <laughs> an icon we haven't mentioned steve buscemi <laughs> right. but he's iconic in these films we didn't mention actors really but yeah definitely those are important if you're just really gonna get obsessive about this period like i guess i've become but finally what do you guys think which of these movies who are these directors do you want to still be talking about 20 years from now? Or do you think you will be? Uh, who's, well, who I think comes Paul out Thomas of this? Anderson. You're right. Tarantino. And, and frankly, do I want to be talking about or yeah. do I think I, we still will be talking about? Give me both. Okay. Because, like, as much as I enjoy Wes Anderson, I, I, he's not somebody that's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm never really anticipating his next hmm. film. Um, but I think people will continue talking about him. I think some, I think some directors like, frankly, I think a Richard Linklater will fall off. Mm. I think a, uh, and, and so that was the argument I got into. I think that, um, among cineasts, I think Richard Linklater will be very important. I think that, um, slacker is, um, to this conversation we've had today, maybe, uh, the most important, uh, slacker and sex lesson videotape are possibly the most important ones. And I, my reason, I don't, for- I don't think his, um, uh, I know you uh, question his uh, authorship, but I, I still think that the things that do make him an auteur, the things you see in uh, the conversations they have in Slacker and Days of Confused and the before movies and Waking Life, I think are uh, so emblematic of this of this time and have so infused uh, every kind of uh, every, every kind of, of culture, you know, um, or every kind of pop culture, or maybe not music, but I think 
television and even writing is influenced by the way that Linklater's characters talk about things. Now, it's possible I might have misinterpreted the question. Um, do you mean, like, filmmakers that will still talk about even, like, in the way we talk about, say... Who transcends this period? Who's, okay. who's going to be talked about as not an indie wood filmmaker, but a filmmaker for the ages? So even if Richard Linklater doesn't make another good movie his whole career, he'll still be talked about. That's what, is that what you're talking Let's about? Let's say they all stopped now. Why not? Okay. Then yes, I think, I think Richard Link- Linklater would be talked about. I don't think Robert Rodriguez would. Mm, I think right. he would drop off. Um, there's maybe one or two others, but I can't remember them at the moment. Soderbergh will certainly is, is definitely. A, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he'll, he'll continue. Legacy will last for, for good or ill. He's made some, he's made some stinkers, <laughs> but, uh, um, none of us perfect, David. But Colin, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and this might end up being our longest episode ever. Thank we'll, you for we'll, having me. We'll, we'll, we'll find out if that um, other guy hadn't sho- if he had showed up, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, just think, listeners. Uh, uh, if, listeners, if you don't know, you can of course find us at battleshippretension.com. The episodes are there or in iTunes. But also, there's all sorts of uh, movie reviews, both theatrical and uh, home video. And it, with home video, it's even you know. Uh, new release and like catalog stuff that's being re-released or has been restored it's uh, lots of fun stuff that will hopefully inform uh, your thoughts on cinema and also inform your spending uh, decisions be it in the theater or at amazon.com um uh, and that's at battleshippretention.com uh you can email me at david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at tyler at battleshippretension.com follow me on twitter at twitter.com slash the pretension follow tyler at twitter.com slash more lessons which is the official twitter of his other podcast more than one lesson which you can find at more than one lesson.com or in itunes and you can uh find me at my other weekly television review podcast previously on that's at previously on show.com so colin where can people find you colin marshall.org colinmarshall.org and on twitter at Colin Marshall. exactly how did you did, were you an early adopter or are there not a, not as many Colin Marshalls as most as, of as the as Colin Marshalls I know of are in England and they're not good with technology those people so <laughs> I jump them pretty easy and you can find notebooks on cities and culture notebook notebook I'm sorry just, <laughs> just the one notebook yeah I don't I haven't you, gotten, you'll, gotten fill, you'll fill it up yeah. and then um, but you can find that in uh, iTunes I would suggest starting with with my episode and then if you've got time david's episode yeah. then you can move on to other episodes if you like i also recorded with the guy who was supposed to show up today <laughs> trying to find who, him. who could that yeah be? so listen know. to all of the all of those and take a guess at who uh, blew us off today so um <laughs> colin thanks so much for joining us this was a lot of fun my pleasure and thanks for listening everybody and we'll get you next time bye bye